podcast another week another podcast you've used that one before i know i like using it it's got panache it doesn't that's yeah not, i use panache not, yeah but that is an incorrect word for it i disagree it has staying power <laughs> he can disagree He's, anyway he has opinions moving on i'm matt <laughs> i'm john i'm steve um really quick before we get into our album this week which i know steve is eager to discuss um, as well as John, because he's done some research. I did a lot of research. It was um, like eight hours of research. I, I want to quickly plug one of our friends of the show. The Wasties are playing the St. Paddy's Day Parade in Philly, which makes sense because they're an Irish band. So that's awesome. Um, so if you're around the Sunday before um, St. Paddy's Day in Philly, go check out the parade. They will be playing on the back of a float. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's I've never known cool. anyone personally who did that, so it's, it's kind of cool. Yeah, I'm going to be roadieing somehow, either on the float, walking next to it. It's amazing how that, like, that two feet of just being up in the air and moving all of a sudden makes you better than everyone around you in, I'm a, in that setting. I'm a little, like, jealous because I like walking at approximately 1.5 miles an hour yeah. while carrying stuff. Uh, Ready, guys? So We're going to floor it. Two. <laughs> no, but props for them. I mean, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, um, it's a it's a pretty big deal, so it'll get more awareness of their music to someone besides the way station where they have a very strong presence already and in new york pretty much in general so spreading to another state that's a good start that's true the 48 more to go <laughs> well it's philly it's not like it's like bodunk wherever yeah it's a pretty big city podunk no, no, no! It's not even well known as Podunk. Uh, it's Bodunk. Okay, that's the other one. That, yeah, that, yeah, that, that other one. The one, one, that one no about. one even knows. <laughs> yes, there right. you go. Um, I also want to give a shout out to Samus and Megaran, who are hopefully checking out this episode because I told them about the show. Um, I got to see them both last Thursday um, at Home Sweet Home, which is a bar club in uh, Manhattan. On um, I think it was Chelsea, but I can't remember now. Um, they both put on a great show. Samus is actually taking a break from getting her PhD to go on tour with Megaran, which is awesome. PhD in what? I don't remember. She told oh, me, but I don't geez. remember. But it's a PhD. That's, that's the best part about getting a PhD is you know what it is and you tell everybody and they tell oh, their friends. Oh, she told me. Like, I just don't remember. I had, had a fruit. Did you go whoa? I did go whoa. Okay. So, so it was probably impressive. It was a pretty good one. Gotcha. Um, she did some great stuff, including an acapella rap about... Um, Feeling alone as a child because there were no black female characters of any kind in cartoons, video games, or anything else. And it was very powerful and relatable and really awesome. Yeah, you only got them on PBS for a while. And even there, barely. Like, yeah. it, there were no major protagonists. So she did a really powerful a cappella rap about that. Um, Mega Ranch showed up halfway through her set, but still got in time for his. Um, and yeah, they both put on a great show. They both told me that they are going to come on autographs once they're done with their tour. So I'm going to reach out to them again in April. So look for that probably closer to May. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. There was some t a lot of talent in that room. And it's always great to see a nice underground kind of intimate rap show, which I haven't been to in a while. Cheers. 
Um, and then, now I want to bring up something that Steve worked on this past weekend. Um, <laughs> worked on. Well, there was some work involved. There's a new plugin on the site, and you can see John's doodles. It's been on the top of the page for quite a long time, since the very, very early days of the podcast. John started doodling. We were sitting here at the podcast. I mean, just doodles, and it was interesting, and we took a picture of it every week. And it was there in a giant single uh, single blog roll, I suppose. If you can even call it a blog roll, it's just picture after picture after picture, and theoretically it could have gone on to infinite, which would be horrible for everyone's load times. <laughs> so I decided to revamp and turn it into a thumbnail thing, and now it's all pretty, and you can make it full screen, and... And, yeah, he started Doodles again. Well, for the longest time, we had moved from one location to another. I no longer had a flat service to work upon. Mm-hmm. It was my lap, and you can't really draw on your lap. It's it's a little hard. Um, but I actually went out of my way and got myself a clipboard so I can still bring more Doodles to the table. Uh, literally. So for the foreseeable future, we will be bringing more drawings back to our website. Um I'm also working on some other things because it seems that a couple of people do enjoy my doodles. I don't know why. <laughs> Shout out, Jose. That's actually the impetus for us continuing with the doodles. Yeah, we, I actually had somebody shout out and say, yeah. We kind of forgot about it. We were, ready to, we, we were like hovering on the delete button. Hovering. And then we realized they're kind of cool. We wouldn't have deleted it. It would have just been turned off. I mean, the feature would have stayed, but we would just would people wouldn't see it around. Anymore. New writer Tony actually said it has indie appeal. Which is cool. I'm all right with that. I'm all right with that. It was either you you, you completely go over to full-on, like, pretentiousness and then just drop all those parts of the site, or you keep them, you keep them live. I, I, keep I them need live, a scarf. John. I need a scarf. Live. Well, I also like to believe that all of the art that we're doing of any kind would be featured on our own site. For example, if Robert ever Consider makes me them. those rap beats and I write some songs, they'll be featured on Crash Chords, too. I think it's important that the stuff we work on is on our site. It's our site. Consider can, no, well, consider them weekly bemusements. Sure. That, that, I'll consider it that. O- on that note, so I'll concede me. to you I taking us that. into this week album. All right, concede away. <sighs> episode 134 seems like an oddball number and perhaps maybe a belated episode with which to confront a very near and dear topic to me. That being, I say this unabashedly, one of my favorite bands of all time. Two and a half years doing this might tell you that I don't throw around those words lightly. And while I realize that different tastes might take us in different places, in this case, I feel the need to apply a piece of musical wisdom, courtesy of a friend of mine. If someone comes up to you and says the Beatles suck, for once, please don't respect their opinion. Put them in their place, because that's the stuff of trolls. Love them or hate them, the Beatles changed the face of music. They were veritable geysers of creativity, inspiring millions, emulated by millions, and furthered by millions more. I guess you could probably see where I'm going with this, and that is I can't apply any less to today's band, the Decemberists. Their sound has spawned entire subgenres, fusions, and cult followings in the 21st century, proving to leery generation Xers and millennials that folk is more than a quaint throwback to the bleeding heart 60s. It's a force to be reckoned with, can move empires, or me, to laughter and tears. Now first, I believe that a favorite band does not mean that all their albums are five stars. To me, it means that most of their albums are upper echelon fours. So, in those upper echelon four territory, you get wildly varying and consistently unexpected reasons why you might put them in that territory. They keep you on your toes, but also at the same time, they never reinvent their sound so much as to alienate their fans. So Decemberists are the only band that I know who I think for the duration of the 2000s and six spectacular albums, they've managed to keep that certain style enmeshed within their work. 
and it, it just it never grows stale. That style I could define as being fanciful at times, historical at times, yet somehow relatable. It traces odysseys and oddities, sometimes back to back and each with the same emotional fervor. They love folklore, and their stage work often portrays battles and, and histories on stage concerning wherever they're playing. They might do a shout out to, let's say, you know, insert local town and then amp up the, uh, the historical background of that town just for, you know, the, for the shout out. It's a, it's a sweet thing for a band to do, and they, they really do care about their fans. Of course, this is aided by very talented period-centric musicians like Chris Funk uh, on acoustic and electric guitars, also banjo, also bazooki, and mandolin. Nate Query on bass guitar and upright bass, John Moen on drums, percussion, and backing vocals, and one of my favorites, Jenny Conley on piano, Hammond organ, uh, vibraphone, accordion, and just general keyboards, which I think really provides the, uh, the overall sound to their work. I mean, when you throw in unexpected uh, instruments like organ and like accordion, then it, it, you know, it serves to kind of throw it back in time a little bit, maybe even a hundred years. But, finally, we owe a lot of this to the band's frontman, guitarist, singer-songwriter, Colin Malloy. What can I say but that Colin is a 21st century powerhouse of ingenuity, with the soul of a 19th century Irish immigrant. His melodies are incomparable, even the worst of which are catchy, the best of which are ambitious enough to bring his fans together in playful imitation of his signature warbling vocals, a deterrent for some, a bonus for me. As for his lyrics, they employ a vocabulary unseen in several decades. He's the only songwriter who I know who manages to consistently blend his great melodies with great poetry. In fact, they're one of the first bands that I ever loved for lyrics alongside the music itself. He set the standard impossibly high for me with his lyrics. I favor instrumentals because I groan at the failure of most musicians to command the English language with his prowess. I could probably grab any line from any verse from any song and it would win awards for pure wordsmithing, meaning aside. Here's just an example. There is a city by the sea, a gentle company, I don't suppose you want to, and as it tells its sorry tale in harrowing detail, its hollowness will haunt you. Its streets and boulevards, orphans and oligarchs it hears, a plaintive melody, truncated symphony, an ocean's garbled vomit on the shore. Los Angeles, I'm yours. That song actually makes me want to go to Los Angeles. That's ridiculous that he has that power. So from sea shanties to coffee shop guitar, whatever the Decembers do, there's no gimmicks. Whatever style they're toying with, they infuse it with their signature style to the point where you'd think they created it. Hazards of Love, that was released in 2009. Uh, Crane Wife, released in 2006. They can drift very metal at times. King is Dead, released in 2011, tends to drift very country. So in many ways, they're a gateway band to various genres, luring in untested and eager audiences. Now to their new album. What a terrible world, what a beautiful world. Interest, interesting album title. Kind of the duality of all the best things in life and all the worst things in life. Uh, this was released just this year. It's a 2015 album. And I wanted to see whether they would take it in the direction of their last album, King is Dead, which, as I said, drifted very country. But I have to admit, that album was the first album I would say there was perhaps a slight dip in quality. I wasn't feeling all the tracks in that album. I never feel all the tracks on every album, but... King is Dead just seemed to just, I don't know, it wasn't quite, it didn't have those aha moments, and believe me, their previous albums was never short of those aha moments. As for this new album, well, let's get into it. First, just on the title itself, um, 
there is a story behind that, apart from just incorporating the most terrible things in life and the most beautiful things in life. The album's title comes from a line in a later song on this album, 12-17-12, uh, a reference to the date of Barack Obama's speech in response to the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. Ouch. And that song, it confronts Colin Malloy's conflicting feelings about the shooting, and then, on the flip side, his happy personal life. So, that's a lot to be grappling with. I'm leery about works that invoke, like, current events in a very on-the-nose fashion, but I do like the concept of a sort of, like, holistic duality. Great beauty has always existed right alongside great tragedy, and that's just a sad fact of life. Well, I think also it's important to note that anyone who experiences any kind of tragedy like that in the news, no matter how good your life is, you are brought to that moment where you f don't know what to feel because mm -hmm. you want to be happy say you're in love and you're with that person you're in love in that moment but people are dying and it it's on the news it's in front of you the imagery's there it's really it's really hard to grapple with feelings like that and i think it's important to bring those moments to light which is why i actually am quite a fan of the title and that duality that it's bringing up just in name alone yeah plus it's nearly impossible to to really be able to appreciate good things, beautiful things, and just aesthetically pleasing things without a contrast in which to uh, compare it with. Yeah. Something is only as beautiful as what it can be compared to as ugly. You have to be able to see things like most basic ideas of symmetry and stuff like that, or just an understanding that the layers go deeper than what it is, to know that at its core there's a goodness about it. That's That's what beauty can for me, really boiled down to, there's inherent goodness within an item. Mm. But the only way to experience that goodness is to know how bad something could be in the same situation. Well, let's see if the album addresses that to the same degree as perhaps that song, which we'll get to. That's the second to last track, so it'll be a while. First, we start off with track one, The Singer Addresses His Audience. Now, I'll just start by saying that from the music angle, Really, this is classic Decemberists. It's everything I said before. You have the fairly simple, soft folk acoustic guitar. Alongside that, Colin's signature voice. It just starts building one after the other. But consider the topic. It's the singer addresses his audience. And as you look in the lyrics here, it, you almost might get a sense of what this track is about. We know, we know we belong to you. We know you built your life around us. Would we change? We had to change some. Yeah, I appreciate that. This is going back to our Weezer discussion and the way he addresses his fan work there. Here, they're doing a very similar kind of an idea. It's not 100% though on the nose. Well, I would think that's funny because, you know, on the face of it, one might imagine that this is such a reflection of that Weezer discussion that was back in episode 116. For the uninformed, a big theme in that episode surrounded John's longtime adoration of that band, much like mine today, and the question of where day, Weezer has arrived after a 20-year discography, and after a dip in quality that many indicted them for. So in that album, aptly titled Everything Will Be Alright in the End, they actually broke the fourth wall and addressed their fans from that standpoint, like it was time to clear the air and get back on the right track. Now while I never saw that much of a decline in the Decemberist work, except for perhaps, as I said, maybe the king is dead, these lyrics in this track at first seemed even more on the nose than Weezer's. I mean, the fourth wall is just eradicated here. Uh, you look a little bit further along, obviously, yeah, what you read is concerning, you know, well, we belong to you, we grew your, you grew your arms around us, it's this, this connectivity with their fans. Um, but then they went into something else. So when your bridal processional is a televised confessional to the benefits of Axe Shampoo, 
and we did it for you. We did it all for you. I'm like, wait a second. Was was the Decemberist in an Axe commercial and I don't recall it? And then I, I, I thought up the possibility that this is just Colin doing exactly what Colin does, is that he steps into character, as he's done since the beginning of their work. Sometimes he's in a historical character. Sometimes he's in a, a more a character more in recent history. And then sometimes he's just in the character of an artist, an artist not being him, strangely enough. There's uh, earlier tracks called, like, you know, I Was Meant for the Stage. You know, it, it's, it's like this fanciful idea of the artist on stage. And that's where I got... The, the notion that this just wasn't quite him, and I yeah, did a little bit of researching. Apparently there is an interview in which he kind of uh, unloaded it as being a song sung from the perspective of a changing generic boy band. A boy band that's grown out of, you know, the, the market trends like you might expect an Axe commercial to be thrown in there, and then they want to develop their art. They're getting mature, so why should their art stay the same despite the fact that they unfortunately built a fan base surrounding that exact art. It's a, it's a tricky little question. I like the fact that he raised it. And it's also uh, right there in the way the music builds, because as we're going along and we get our basic instruments, basic vocal work, but then there's a smattering of harmonies thrown in there. Not on every uh, single word, but just enough to start showing a little bit of change in the overall tone. A smattering of violin work, higher strings, very lightly just tapped on and on. And all these builds start really developing into almost a pump-up rock build. Yeah. Like a truly classic rock kind of a let's go, let's go to the wall. Yeah. Just from my research, and I did a lot of research doing this, a <laughs> lot of listening to Decembris, I saw both sides of this in their previous work. Here is as indicative as their previous stuff. They don't feel completely separate, the, the folk-oriented beginning and the rock-oriented ending, but they do feel like they're two pieces of the same song, two different takes on the same idea. It's very much in line with a lot of their previous work, and I really love the way they're an indie band and a rock band at times, and this song just shows that off. Yeah, you made that interesting comment earlier that, well, they're not folk rock, as they're often called. They're folk and rock, which is interestingly because they can blend it easily. And when you say folk rock, that implies they're, well, all at the same time, all at once. They go from one to the other, sometimes simultaneously, sometimes not. And, and this track really does show the, the, the evolution from one side of the spectrum to the other. So uh, this is a good first track as far as, as far as a new album of theirs was. Well, also, I mean, what I really like about it is an intro track, since we like to acknowledge how an album starts is important. It's very direct, but it it eases you in musically. And like Steve described, you know, it does start at a very kind of basic, folky kind of December sound. But then once the, the, the singing comes in and the lyrics and you get a sense of the story that he's crafting, it really does bloom into a full-fledged December song that does have both sides of the same coin, as John pointed out. I think it's a strong start, and the lyrics are direct and to the point, and even if they're not about this band, them being about a band, and it being kind of confessional at the top of the album, really adds an emotional state to it that charges the, the start of the record. The one gripe I really do have with this song, and it's more of just, I have to point it out, is that the song itself has a very definitive finality about it. The way it ends is a very strong period. Mm. And it's a little jarring that way because we're being introduced to an album, but 
at the same time, it almost is a tail end piece. Kind of like it's showing its cards all at once because it provides an outro, and you realize, well, wait, we just we just started. <laughs> and and it, it's a little bit hard. Like, where do you go from there? Because it's it's so much the, well, here's the end of the story. Yeah. As it's the to belong to belong outro piece, and as it really starts to to culminate that rock build to really put a lot of instrumentation in there and a lot of almost epicness to it. Yeah, they it, bellowed out. You get a lot of uh, a lot of like electric electric guitar solo. Oh, yeah. and they really lay on the rock really thick, um, and but he just starts bellowing out that you you know to belong to you to belong to belong to belong. Uh, so he hammers that home, and it is it does sound like one of those quintessential closers, like to a concert. It would be your your encore, your final encore. The only reason I don't have as much trouble with it is because Colin is known for creating very distinct and craftable, very. F- finished stories that have a beginning and an end within a story. Yeah, and that's something I noticed, and it's very very impossible for me to go through this this album without, like, referring to their early discography, but, like, they had a tendency to do that, um, you know, throughout. Like, back in Picaresque, for instance, that was released in 2005, you had Mariner's Revenge, which is the second to last track, and it's like an epic unto itself. It stands alone, and it, it could have been on a separate EP. It's a very long track, yeah. and it is... It is this signature tale. You really don't have to have it on the album. And maybe this is kind of one of those tracks. Um, I don't feel like it has the same vastness necessarily. Yeah, but so, I think of the completeness of it, the finality of the tail end, I think just speaks to his storytelling more than anything else. Well, let's see how it addresses with the with the transition. Because, of course, you know, when... Speaking of what John said, of course, if you have that grand outro, where do you go from there? Say his words. Well, you go to to the uh, Cavalry Captain. (laughs) Cavalry Captain. This is the first time I think I actually noted a slightly bizarre intro to a December's track as far as genres they're picking. Again, they've thrown us before. They've thrown us with lots of different genres, and they always manage to make it their own. Well, I was the naysayer at first. The first few measures, it's like they've taken a trip back to Motown here. Got the heavy tambourine-aided beatwork, the crisp bass line, and the ever-rousing trumpet lineup that bellows out the main riff. It's definitely fun, not quite Decemberists. I did enjoy it, though. It was a nice combination of pieces, and the way those deeper chords were used uh, in between uh, verses and choruses as sort of transitional pieces mm-hmm. was really interesting. Great kind of meaty little chunks that didn't fill you up. Well, that's the thing. It's like a retrospective deal. Like, in context, once we get into the verse and then Colin Malloy starts singing, then all of a sudden I realized I was duped. I followed the same... The same trap as I followed into before, where I was a naysayer, let's say, when they first broached the idea of a very metal track when uh, they played When the War Came back in uh, The Crane Wife. And I was kind of a naysayer then. I was like, this isn't December, so I'm going to turn it up. And then they just owned it throughout. Well, they kind of own this as well. The second you hear Colin Malloy's voice, then instantly it is the Decemberists. And then that just whittles away. Now, all of a sudden, you accept the thing that John mentioned. You accept those those trumpet lineups as these, these interspersed things between choruses and verses and so forth. It just becomes integrated. What I also like, like, the exact reaction I had is I was shocked long enough to then get comfortable. Like, yeah. I didn't say shocked long enough that it took me out of the track. I was just like, oh, this is different. What's going on? Oh, it's Colin's voice. All right, I'm on board. Like, I, there was not enough time gap to actually have an issue. And it was, and I mean, it was good besides the fact, but literally I was alarmed long enough to then get comfortable. And I think that was a strong thing about this track. I also think that going so far left after being so far right in the intro 
gives a dichotomy to the opening of the album that is also really interesting. And frankly, they've done that before as well. I yeah. mean, you know, early early portions of previous albums, I can remember they did that in the beginning of Picaresque, actually. You know, they would they would constantly go back and forth between the very, very sorrowful track and the very, very uplifting track, you know, from, from The Sporting Life, for instance, and then, you know, following Eli the Barrow Boy. <laughs> it's just like, again, odysseys and oddities at the same time. And here I started to actually appreciate... Um, a little bit of the theme work that they're already introducing here. There's a there's a character being built. Everything, just because of Colin's voice, you, you can't get away from the character he represents. Mm-hmm. All of his storytelling ability is 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 phenomenal, and we're really not getting the the short end of the stick here either. Well, if the first track was a closing to a show where his persona is a new person or a new person breaking away from a boy band, this is the beginning of the after party. This becomes evident as the story goes along, as well, your different songs start There's going a duality in. here, of course, though, and that is the, the fact, like, you have this very sort of lively main riff contrasted with this this almost sorrowful four-chord progression. It, it, it really contrasts. You, it's an A minor, and you follow a pretty, say, four-chord progression. It's a six, go up to the seven chord, right? Major six to major seven, it kind of raises enthusiastically, and then it retreats back with this minor five, minor one. Right, following home at the tail end there. So, again, it's weird to kind of mesh this uh, this this tone that is clearly a little bit sorrowful with the kind of thing that you'd expect to appear on Ed Sullivan. Well, it's a combination of high energy versus weariness, especially in the deeper chords. Mm. I'm detecting a lot of weariness here, sort of uh, coming down from an adrenaline high. I That's... especially got that um, as we move into, like, for instance, the verse ends really, really abruptly. And the second the, ver- the verses end, where it's sort of like it's snuffed out by the bridge. And the bridge really does have that, that sort of soft moment. It, it's a soft and sweet moment that's a call and response where these echoes are, are, are whispered um, by female voices. And that's, again, the call and response is a, a trademark tactic that he's used at the same time also uh, just having female voices like in the background stepping forward. In the very beginning, it was Jerry, Jenny Conley, and then later on, some other uh, female vocalist stepped in as like guests for, for various albums. Um, so here, you get, and if only for a second, and then the whisper is, only for a second. And if only for a time, only for a time. And if only for a second, only for a time. And then it's kind of like this back and forth, will be alive. So it's, it's, it was this very sweet moment, like, interspersed in the middle here. I, bridges do tend to be my favorite parts of a lot of these songs. Well, I also really like, lyrically, the, the verse right after that, because just the kind of imagery of this, this cavalry captain he paints, I really like. I am the cavalry captain. I am the remedy to your heart. I am the carbon collected. I am the printing upon your stars. It's just beautiful words that really work really well together, I think. And it comes off very... That's what he's always done. Well, it comes off very grandiose. Yeah. It comes off, I mean, I am the printing upon your stars. There's a confidence. It's it's fate, baby. It's fate. If he can make Los Angeles grandiose and make it sound like there's a fate involved, because it's like the coldest place on Earth, or frequently cited as the coldest place on Earth, well, he can do that to just about any subject imaginable. So... Yeah, I, I, you know, this is not one of those tracks where I'm, I'm saying it's like reached a real height for the album. It's just that transitionary fun track. I do have one down note, and we can brush over it because we've talked this to death. But the fade out, I was disappointed. The fade out. It's just, Decemberists especially don't really fade out. 
No, they. I can't recall a single. They usually ever. have some kind of name. And what I like about that is like, and and Robert actually cites this a lot. Is he, the way they end their tracks allow the wasties when they cover them to play with how they end their track because the fact that they end, they can extend it, they could change it up, and they then, can end on a different instrument, a different note. And here they but broke when, the rule. When you fade out, it's like it, it's what Lewis Logic said. Are you so pretentious that you believe your song goes forever, so you just have to turn it off because it'll never end. Like yeah. it's just I mean again it's, it's it's I forget whether I said that or him. I think I we agreed him, agreed over it. But, I forget. But the the point episode is episode ninety, check it out. The this point, proved one of us. The the point is though, is that I just I thought it was a cheap way to end the track, especially considering how much character this track had and this kind of puffed chest confidence, like Go out with a bang. Then well, again, it, lots no, no, of no. tracks of that era, like Motown, Motown yeah. style, really would flip, fade out. So it's really just a sure. It's 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 catering to the style. Granted, I've never known uh, the Decemberists to cater, but eh, I don't it's, know. It's it's a screen wipe. It's being used to set the story along a little bit along its way because the bang, the ending with a bang, is the next song. That's, that's true. That's the There's next the part of what we're going to get. So John's talking about Philomena, which is the third track on the record. Oh, this track. So this one, the interesting thing about this one musically is that it starts off with this kind of doo-wop fusion with surf rock. Oh, yeah. Piano, at the very beginning, it's just piano, simple triads, G major. Here's your, your standard upbeat. 1950s chord progression. Major one, minor six, minor two, major it's, five, go back to one. It, it Especially when you just keep your fingers like at the same spot using inversions on piano. That's that's so <laughs> 50s. Vintage doo-wop. And when you combine it with the lyrics, it becomes the dirtiest parts of Greece you can imagine. Well, yeah. I said that this song is both dirty and delightful. And it's it really is character-wise. Let's, let's, let's focus on the delight first. Sure. You have Colin's high school sweetness. I mean, it's so cheery, I want it to accompany like a bleached music video. Um, then the lyrics, they at first kind of do take that into account. Oh, Philomena, are you in a tawdry gown? Now, this is a little digression of mine, if I may just stop here, because this is one of those words, those crazy words. Could I words. honestly stop you if I wanted to? No, you can't. So right. there you go. I'm here gonna we go. take a... I have a little, no, it's a story. It's an anecdote. It's a little anecdote. <laughs> Let him anecdote. First time I saw them, no, first and only time I saw them in concert was at the Beacon, uh, January 2011, the night of one of the biggest uh, storms that year here in New York, and it started snowing just as me and my friend were traveling there. And it was a fine layer of snow just as we entered and called first words, and I'm waiting. It's the first time I've ever heard Colin speak in person, and he says, I hope you're enjoying this wintry mix. And I'm just, I'm just like giddy. That's Colin doing his thing right here. First words out of his mouth. Total giddiness. And then I had to leave the concert later to a raging snowstorm. But um, kind of fit when you consider I saw the Decemberists. Well, yeah. I mean, I would imagine a snowy cabin in the hills somewhere. Like, yeah. For most of them. I got the works. That or a dock in the middle of a sea shanty town. Either or. Anyway, digression over. Oh, Philomena, are you in a tawdry gown? Lean to your window. Let slip a ribbon down. A cure to your boredom, if only you'll let me go down, down, down. Now here's where it starts to, uh... <laughs> I see it. what you're doing you see, there. Yeah, yeah. Because, of course, and this is a weird do I mean, he does this all the time. He he incorporates little dirty things in here, but it's usually buried in his, in his amazing vocabulary and his way with words such that he said it so beautifully you barely noticed that he was talking about oral sex. Well, he did it here. Granted, this is even a little bit further for him, but... Heard, I read one article citing this as his dirtiest track. I don't know. It depends on what you see as the dirtier I was gonna side say, of No, 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 him, no. Really. Okay, okay, okay. We do have the next verse. Long sunny days can lead to lazy vices. Boys all at idle, 
left to their own devices. Open up your linen lap and let me go down, down, down. Pretty that's, on the nose. That's, 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 that's not on the nose. nose. He's yeah. actually just flicking you. Flicking you right in the middle of your face. Yeah, that's But, right. I mean, but back to what Steve said, though. The, the, the determining dirtiest. I mean, for me, I feel like Cautionary Song, a Cautionary Song is a much dirtier track talking about someone's mom you know True. and so like, that's what I was thinking yeah. like that's the other side that they yeah. have but then you have the chorus all I ever wanted in the world was just to live to see a naked girl no well here okay, okay come on, the, come this, on. Is, this is the duality the second you you go here you realize this is of course concerning adolescence this yes. is not just someone on you know some 50 year old man on, on the prowl for oral sex <laughs> no this is this is uh, this is Odd, a oddly enough, it's teenager. Yeah, yeah, but maybe even preteen. Who knows? Yeah. It's like the the burgeoning of sexuality. Because the second you see that, all I wanted in the world was just to live, to see a naked girl. That's yeah. that's so 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 quaint, you know. But then I found I've quickly bored. I wanted more. I wanted more. Now here's the real brilliance. Because of course you think I wanted more. I wanted more. It's a typical. Uh, it's a typical cliche used in in the context of love well more is the thing that you want more than let's say the the sex life that you have because that's not substantial you need love you need you need everything else but for an adolescent more is just the next level of your, the bases that you're crossing off the list <laughs> hey i went under your shirt <laughs> like this is is really just through that eyes and then through the lens of the 1950s like doo-wop melody which very often tended to concern very racy subjects, but then clouding them in whatever they had to do because of the censors of the time. It's kind of the same kind of deal. And you get that, also that high school feel just by it being a doo-wop track. You feel like you're on a 1950s dance floor. So there's lots of little things working together here to basically get his message across in as Colin away as possible. Well, and also for me, I think at the core of it, this track made me chuckle. I mean, the first time I heard the the end of the the verse, you know, the down, 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 it was obvious what he was singing about. And, you know, if you drift a little bit at the beginning of the song because you're just like, oh, December, it's great, oh, this is sweet, wait, what? It gives you a chuckle. And and I think that tackling it from the perspective as an adolescence adds an innocence to it that really gives it a lot of charm, which Colin is not short on anyway, but I like that charm that's infused in this track. But it's not just a doo-wop. It's also got some really great deeper levels to the percussion work. It's It's got a pluckiness to the guitar work. It's got strings on top just floating in and out that really do a great job of separating it from the era and really putting a bit of a spin on it musically. The layering and, and, and just the comping that's going on here and there is enough to... Keep it fresh in my ears. Sure, you've got the bright kind of Les Paul style guitar, and then alongside that, the the female vocals. Yeah, those the singers in the background just doing that. Ooh, uh, well, granted, little cliche, and actually it even gets more cliche when you go to the bridge because there you have the echo of the la 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 la, and that's like you know it's drenched in that that high school auditorium level reverb. You know, you feel as if this is through the the recording technology of the 1950s in some way. So I think it really is an experiment in like going back in time, but then fusing it with the subject that, well, everyone can kind of relate to. Yeah, because I mean... If you are a sexual being. <laughs> yes, a sexual being of any kind who likes going down on another sexual or being. Or who simply has like memories, you know, right, again, because the fact that it's through the, the, the adolescent lens I think is interesting and it's kind of the subject that I think only, only he can broach with real tastefulness. Well, I think... Because everyone has as memories of that kind and I, how we got to go 
from being a child to all of a sudden being an being, adult. being on the prowl. Well, well, it's also one of those things that when it comes to sexuality, too, discovering your own sexuality and like those earliest moments when you first have a sexual encounter, it has this air of mystery and intrigue, and it doesn't lose that later in life. It just changes. But that that adolescent view of it has this kind of foggy, misty view where you're just like, oh, you know, and it it, it 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 and he gets it across in the song, which I really like. Well, it, that is more heavily enforced that idea in the next track, make you better. Here, this is the pleading to the home run. If we're gonna go with baseball well, analogies, I mean, it, it, this is a more adult take and perspective too, an emotional, a more emotional take too. It's more an adult take because let's let let's face it on on. I mean, he's basically saying, "Well, I'll I'll do what the other guys won't," you know, and yeah. that's 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 the servicing that goes with it. Once you once you realize that, hey, it's not all about pleasuring yourself; it's about pleasuring another person. Yeah, you know, it's it's on the nose, and maybe it's a little it's a little it's a little sexualized for his, for his typical fare. Yeah. But I think it's still it, it's got his language. But yeah. by the time you get to, so I'll be your candle and I'll be your statuette, I'll be your lash and loop of leather and dark Philomena if you'll only go down. I mean, that's just classic Colin songwriting that it shows he can tackle any subject with a certain level of tastefulness because as long as you have the vocabulary for it, then yeah, you've got it. You've got them by the ear. Moving on to the track that John brought up, the next track, Make You Better, which is the first single off the record. I have a minor anecdote about this. So, I got into the Decemberists fairly late, but I've been listening to them for over a year, and I've heard their entire discography. I got into them through Sarah of the Wasties, um, my fiancé, because the Wasties cover quite a few tracks by the Decemberists. They're all huge fans. And yeah, they, I've heard you say they talk about it ad nauseum. Well, they they're cover, actually constru- They cover the appropriate tracks by them, which are the ones concerning, you know, old school, like, like hundred-year-ago tales, like uh, a, cautionary, a Cautionary Song and uh, Shankill Butchers. They correct? also do uh, um, um, Rocks and Box. Mm-hmm. They also do um, Don't Carry It All. The, po- the point that I'm, I'm making, though, is... So, the digression is, I ha- there hadn't been a new Decemberist album out since I'd met the Wasties. And so I saw this music video as soon as it came out, as soon as Colin posted it on Facebook, I watched it and loved it. So then I got to have this moment when the Wasties were practicing here going, hey guys, did you see the new uh, Decemberist video? And they're like, no. And I was like, oh, well, let me show you. And then silence as the video is playing on my computer as everyone's in awe of the video, of the music. It was just a really cool moment to share something with the people who originally shared it with me. As I said at the beginning, the Decemberists have a way of just kind of like bringing people together. It's a cult following because if you're just, if you have that like historical bent, I even read one uh, one article that referred to uh, Decemberist fans as being bookish. Yeah. And that's very appropriate. If you just have that kind of longing for the old school and the old ways and simple, simple subjects, you know, told in a poetic way. Uh, one-on-one kind of fashion. That's basically uh, why you might go to them. So Make You Better was, I really connected with, obviously, because it's a very emotional, dri- emotionally driven track. It has powerful imagery. It's, it's, a, it's a love song, and it's a, it's a learning with love song. It's not just a direct, straight-up love song. It's There's also, more to it. There's layers. It's also addressed the guitar in the beginning. I mean, this, this isn't an untested style for Decemberists, but it's rarely tested. I only, like, marked it in one other instance. It reminded me very much of, like, the brooding doom metal-esque guitar found in uh, When the War Came that was back on uh, The Crane Wife. And if we're going to make further allusions, I immediately 
while I couldn't remember the song for the longest time, thought of the Foo Fighters Everlong. And I saw that immediately. It's the same. It's that same kind of like like gritty brooding, as I said, doom metal kind of guitar, but without really having the other doom metal instruments stepping into surrounded. Instead, it just uses that as an opener. And I like the fact that it took the mood down a peg. Again, very much in contrast to the previous track. Uh, well, I sensed, I sensed, I think I sensed more more potential in the style. Like I kind of wanted them to almost go toward the grit of, of when the war came. But granted, that's a very heavy track for them. In this case, we're getting piano work and very, very soft percussion. Yeah. This combination is almost classic indie love. Yeah. In fact, um, it, by the time the chorus steps in, it's 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 a little more lighthearted. Like it kind of withdraws that back a bit. It almost becomes Ben Foldian. There's your piano influence. Um, but there's this back and forth nature between the verses and the chorus. So that like the verses explain like the desire to make you better. The 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 improvement, the harrowing process of going through the motions, and then by the time you get to the choruses, it's like the success story. So it's almost it's almost fittingly more lighthearted. Um, almost like a success story. I can't, I can't, I'm not yet 100% on that analysis here, but it's... What, what the lyrics say to me also, though, is especially in the first verse, it's the more adult approach of that sexualized drive that the first song had. I mean, it, it, it's there in the first verse. Uh, I want you thin fingers, I want you thin fingernails. And when you bend backwards, I want you, I needed you, oh, oh, to make me better. You know... It's, it's but see, I didn't interpret that in the same way. Granted, maybe that's a little double entendre there, but it's secondary, I think, to the primary motive, which is, of course, to, I think, actually, the, the idea of fixing someone. Oh, that no, Which enters yeah. relationships a lot, and it's often a, a frowned-upon subject because usually that, that means that uh, thick waters are ahead. Yeah, but, but I mean, even later stuff in, in the lyrics, it, it gives to that, that, that struggle with not seeing someone the way you saw them initially. But we're not so starry-eyed anymore, like the perfect paramour you were in your letters. And I love that illusion right there. The perfect paramour in your letters. Just the idea of their communications. And it's kind of a letters. Quaint... Letters are so... See, that's the thing. Letters are just about any written correspondence between, like, between lovers of such... You're really presenting the other person with an idealized version of you. You've put every little word in the proper space. You're, 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 you're really amping it up for, to, to impress. And you have all the time with which to accomplish that. But, you know, Perfect that really is the... Em- and that's, that's it's it. emblematic of being starry-eyed. I, I love the way he phrases it. And won't it all just come around to make you, let it all unbreak you, to the day you met her, but it'd make you better, it'd make you better. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit of foreshadowing of darkness going on in here. Well, no, not even a little. A lot of bit. That's, there's that's there's your, something going verses. on there. And that adds the weight, weight to the song, too. That Pretty sure darkness. that was the verse. That, yeah. yeah. And then follow along with, I sung you your twinges. I suffered you your tattletales. And when you broke sideways, I wanted you, I needed you oh, to make me better. Again, that, 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 that twang just coming through his turn of phrase it's i i feel like that being the chorus though is indicative of this being a success in some way especially considering the tone in the music i i can't confirm that it seems like an oddball uh considering i've never really known the idea of fixing someone to be a success well the 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 idea is if if, if, you can fix someone without necessarily wanting to change their entire personality 
everyone needs a support and a support system and fixing someone in the sense that you're helping them get on track fix their lives fix a table fix anything like you're helping them yeah, just being there for yeah them. and it's it, and it boils down to that um something interesting we also get towards the end of the song which which I hadn't heard in a lot of other December's tracks, although it is there, is this kind of bending guitar solo that they do for the whole tail end of the track, which I really loved. It had this kind of classic rock and roll vibe, you know, just really hammering on that, that guitar solo and just making it, but, but bending it to his will almost, dragging it out, letting it flow. It was really interesting. This also playing off of the organ that gets introduced and the pickup and the percussion work uh, did a lot to really... Not epic. Epic is not the right word, but there's an adjective for epic that really does describe what this does. It makes it... Impactful. Once again, yeah, and also grandiose again. It makes it bigger than what it already was. I, I'm a little back and forth on that. I think that this track... I, I think that for the most part, apart from that that intro, like by the time they had thrown me back and forth between the verse and choruses, and I was probably more into the verses than the choruses for sure, I, I feel like the choruses had the essence of pop, and the whole track maybe had the essence of pop, but, but with few frills, barring perhaps the, that thing you mentioned, Matt, that sort of... I don't know if you could really call it a solo at the end there, but that groaning at the end there, yeah. that kind of it really does... Maybe implied that something is, in fact, lurking on the horizon. I mean, after all, uh, you consider that. Let it all unbreak you to the day you met her, but it'd make you better. It'd make you better. I don't know. Maybe it's more of a re- retrospective idea that, like, well, maybe you're better for it. Yeah. It, but you're not together. The, the, out, the, the track is inconclusive. There's no finality to this track for sure. It's left open-ended, which I like because it connects it to track five very well. I think because we get an, a much stronger... Um, setting story in the next track, which is Lake Song, which is track five. I loved the Lake Song. Absolutely loved it. This brought me straight back to Castaways and Cutouts, their very, very first album. It had that very warm, kind of country rock acoustic, and it, it, it was sort of amazing to me immediately how just that one instrument, one tone, can like give you the impression of a, an entire landscape. It had this middle America just, just slathered on throughout. It's, like, I foresee vast grasslands and such, more perhaps, as the title indicates, near a lake. Well, it had this kind of somber tone that wasn't necessarily sad or depressing. It just had this kind of little bit of darkness. But also, setting-wise, what I really liked is it gave me, like, visions of when I would go camping. The big sure. lake, the, the long pier that you could jump off into the water. All of it. It's almost as if Robert Frost wrote a song. I mean... This is. And I, I would like compare, that comparison. I would compare a lot of Decemberists to that sort of an idea. The the almost freeform nature of the way the lyrics are 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 working within the framework of the song itself, because he does not. There's no concessions to the actual tempo of the song. If there's a frame he has to put words into, he fits it in there how he feels like it. There's no being beholden to a certain grouping of syllables. That's kind of aided, just, aided by his uh, that, that little warble of his voice, for instance. Like, he well, puts perfect, it in just the right the place, then, of course, he goes the word with, fits. There's, there is pauses in his word, but they're kind of hard to really detect because they're not clipped. Since everything is flowing so well, you just get a, a almost stream of consciousness in some points. But it's not the randomness of consciousness. It's just free-flowing poetry going on top of what is very... I, I don't want to say rigid, but very almost predictable music. 
Now, that's not saying I'm not enjoying the music because this predictability, I think, really complements the vocals and the lyrics that are going on here. I didn't see any predict. See, predictability doesn't enter into this track for me because of the fact that, all right, granted, it's it's fairly stable, fairly unchanging. That's it. It's stable. Stable. All right. Predictability but is not that the right is word. the nature of sitting on a lakeside with stagnant water and then the sun is just slowly going down. And it's amazing how I visualized this before even really picking up the lyrics. Like, I was kind of just grooving aloud. I didn't really hear what he was saying. And then you consider, down by the lake, we were overturning pebbles and upending all the animals alight. And I took a drag from your cigarette and pinched it between my finger and my thumb till it died and the sun burned low on the radio. Say that you will. Say you will or will, you won't. Or you whatever, you prevaricate your whole life, don't you? This much I can say, I would have waited till the oceans fell away and all the sunken cities would reveal themselves to you. But you won't, will you? Because you never do. And the sun burned through sweet as honeydew. And, I mean, it's the music set the stage alone. I felt like I was in this environment. And now his lyrics, th- this, is what I'm, this is what I mean by my favorite lyricist of all time. You could take this as poetry. It could be published. The music, perhaps... As as a, as a sideline, it's not even present. All you have is the words. You're in the setting. That's what a great poet does. The music accomplishes that. That's what a great musician does. Together, it's it's ah, I I can't I can't describe it. This is well, I can. Okay, go. Well, because you go. haven't been to then the go. you haven't been to the best part of the lyrics oh, themselves. There. And I, seventeen and terminally fay, I wrote it down and threw it all away. Never gave a thought to what I paid. And you. A sibylline reclining in your pew. You tattered, you tethered me to you. Oh, my favorite line. The things you would and wouldn't do. To tell the truth, I never had a clue. First, 17 and terminally fey. Okay, everybody at 17 has had moments in their life just like that. Everybody in high school has had moments like that. Terminally fey. Forever within the realm of just the, the, the carefree. You combine that with all sibylline. The reclining oracle. The Inspirer, reclining in your pillow. I love the imagery that he's throwing in here. All this is things like, that the music accomplishes in the same exact right. And this is where because, I, I'm going to step Because what's over going to, on here? Oh, oh, I'm this gonna, is... This I'm going to step into things. instrumentation. Yeah, yeah, okay. Because instrumentation, this is very important. Um, I, I began, of course, this begins with the guitar. Well, the guitar was a great start, but it's adding one layer after the other. After the rhythm guitar, we quickly add the piano which was easily my favorite part of this track because of the style and its timbre. It had the tone of kind of a dirty upright piano or maybe of an older, not quite kept up piano, but still very coddled in its time. The kind that's very broken in hasn't ever been ignored. And then as for the comping, this is where I get the style of the piano. It is so smooth, so independent, very like broad sweeping accents, sparse. This is probably Jenny Conley at the piano, I assume. And it reaches up to like the higher ends of the keyboard, accents moments of silence with just an interval or two. Very, very delicate. And again, when you combine that with the the timbre itself, it's absolutely beautiful. I've never really heard this 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 uh, tone in the December's work before. Add that to another layer. The electric guitar steps in as an additional comping instrument, holding longer tones, probably with an effect pedal, uh, and maybe a little bit of the whammy bar there, just holding that long kind of country squeal, as I'd call it. I confess I never really have ever known what to call that kind of tone, but you hear it in a lot of country music, and uh, the Decemberists utilize it in a way that, for once, doesn't really sound cliche. When you add all this together, 
it's it's just a steady flow of and strings too. Didn't even mention strings. Oh yeah, there's a string. <laughs> That's just your courtesy in the background. It's a steady flow outward. It's a steady zoom out. It's just keeps going more and more expansive music. It's like someone just sat a camera, like barely even any people there. You sat a camera like on the side of a lake. I actually am thinking of like this very, very old uh, still picture was taken. It, I believe it was one of the most expensive photos that was ever taken, ever. Uh, or rather, ever sold to someone. Of course, it didn't cost anything to take, but then once it was sold, a lot of people paid money for this picture because it was taken in 1904 and it was in color using like cutting edge technology for its time in order to make a very high-quality color picture, and all you see is just a lake and a fading sun in the background behind, like, a set of trees, basically getting that image through through this. It could have been the album cover, frankly. This, well, this uh, song is by far the strongest setting we've yet we've had so far on the record. It, it, it really does put you in that place. Colin takes you there. This is the strongest story he's told without... With with a stationary main character, with a stationary main character and a stationary uh, setting, s- setting and musical structure. Yes. I mean, it, you could almost call the end of this somewhat of a jam of sorts because, yeah. I mean, a very very light, delicate jam. But it, a lot of it is very very improvisational toward the end. There's not a lot of um, there's no no new material at some point, and I don't want there to be. Again, that still shot is all I need. And it does connect to, again, there's a lot of connective tissue in this part of the record, and it connects very well to Till the Water's All Gone, track six, which from the moment it starts, you get this fantastic bluesy guitar work that kind of mixed with the bass work gives you this almost dirgy kind of feel, which they are no strangers to. And we're finally in a setting that's a little darker. The, the, the sun was going down in the last track, now it's we're in the nightfall. This is the darker part, but it's not super dark. It's just there's there is darkness. It definitely goes from stable and peaceful into somber. Uh, we begin with kind of this odd little warble that then finally thrusts us into uh, this interesting folky bluesy riff in th- in three quarter time, which is um, like provides a little bit of a different feel to this track. It's very warm, close guitar, uh, but two of them in fact. The left ear, you get a rhythm guitar. And the right ear, you get more of an improvisatory guitar. Single line melodies for the most part for that one. Uh, they hold twangs for, for emphasis. The kind that you'd expect from, like, a, if you extracted a single line melody from, let's say, a Robert Johnson tune. Something along those lines. But even then, I don't feel like I'm quite there yet. It, it feels more modern than that, but still, it's all about placement. It's all about feel and... and and, and setting. I, I feel like I'm somewhere in the Deep South, if not Robert Johnson, than some kind of like modern Appalachia or Creole edge to it. And when you take this rhythm guitar, it's, it, it does a great job of pushing the story forward, while frankly that, that, that touching of the guitar picking back and forth a single line, yeah. almost love because the of finger com- picking work. I absolutely love that. It becomes like a complimenting sidekick to the actual vocal work. It's not actually comping in many cases, but it's reacting to just the inflection of what he's saying. Not even what he's actually saying, but just the inflection, the vocal work itself. And I just, it's just pure enjoyment at that point. Yeah. Um, beyond that, especially when you get to the chorus, this is an interesting moment because it, it, it's, it came across, I forget whether you used this word yet, Matt, but you, did you describe this as a dirge at some point? I did. It was as soon as we started talking As soon as we it. started talking, and that's kind of what stuck in my head. I, I mean, 
it's specifically at the chorus though is where I feel that it, I feel this is like it enhances this by stepping in with a, a little more of a chant on just two chords it's a sort of minor one minor four and again when you combine that with that that this sort of like three-quarter feel of the track it comes across as very swooning but also if you were swooning in the wake of like a, a funeral kind of like a state of mourning your tragedy, your tragedy yeah. yeah well I mean the the second verse really gives you that tragedy I mean and you my sweet flower and how you grew more sweet by the hour and loath was I loath was I to lose you my tender rose my limber rose my slender loving daughter my tender rose my limber rose my slender loving daughter very sweet it's just and it's so sad you know there's clearly loss here however whether she's gone away or whether she's passed away there's definitely a sadness here that's very apparent in both the music and the lyrics. I also like the, this is just an odd comment, but I like the concept of till the water is all long gone, till the water is gone. Having come from, you know, a song concerning by the lakeside, it's almost like, well, picture that stagnant, calm imagery and now foresee it drained. Yeah. And and it really does enhance imagery already previously presented. Got to point out the guitar comping also. Uh, again, focusing on that guitar that in the beginning was in the right ear. Uh, sometimes, uh, a little bit later in the track, it introduces this little light gurgling in the background, just amidst the voice and and sort of the misty background that still has perpetuated from the previous track. And it just kind of gurgles like a babbling brook or some kind of uh, unseen swampy figure, you know. The, the, the swamp just kind of like gurgles in the background and there's always a little bit of movement despite the stagnancy so you do get the idea that there is some kind of like draining going on there's still a feel of mist and water and again this this that creole feel is just something i can't quite shake from this especially during that dirge i mean it it that's the kind of thing that you might experience like in louisiana for instance it's it's that 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 staple quality of americana that's only found there yeah like a voodoo chant or something Especially with the consistent like female like voice vocals in the background, just that ooh, you know, against the loose guitar, it's uh, it's, I don't know, it's a it's a very different style I think for them, but still at this time has a lot of prospects to it. And they make it their own, which is things they always something they always do. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of trying to make things their own, track seven. So the wrong year. So the wrong year, I believe, is the second single, though. Don't quote me on that, internet, or quote me that I'm wrong and tell me so. Either way, quote him, please do. I, I believe that that that's the second single, and we get something a little different, not necessarily for them on the overall sound, but maybe in complexity. So this song has more of a pop rock vibe to start out. There's hints of folk overall on the track. It's a little simpler than the previous tracks. The setting is not as strong. It's very verse-chorusy. It's still kind of engaging, but it's definitely very different from everything we've gotten in the past six tracks. And for all the love I've been giving the first six tracks of this album, I this was a total WTF moment. The music shatters for no, me it's here. T- it's a TWY moment. The wrong year. It's shattered here. Your theme... Yeah. Is just getting broken apart. The arc of the music itself is is destroyed by this song. I don't, I don't, I don't like it. I'm just bald face. I don't like this song. Uh, look, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta be honest. I don't think he's really off base here, even 
for a band that I call my favorite band. I think this is just one of those, eh, it's a filler track. It's very basic indie folk, uh, indie folk rock track. You got that electric guitar in the right ear. That's, it's indicative of their earlier work. Um, unfortunately, to much greater extents and artistic implementation when you look at their earlier work and this kind of track. It's just, in the end, this felt a little bit kind of empty. It reminded me of an earlier track from them, specifically, I think, in the chorus here. It reminded me directly of, of On the Bus Mall. I mean, I know their work very, very well, so unfortunately I'm, I'm at liberties to say, like, uh, you're copying yourself there, and I've never really done that. And to all their discography, to say I've never really done that is Again, I called him a powerhouse of ingenuity. This perhaps is the first time I've noticed it, where I was like, that melody feels a little bit lifted. This is specifically in the chorus here, which I believe was, um, uh, and she, and she wants you, but you won't do, and it won't leave you alone, and the rain falls on the wrong year, and it won't leave you alone, and even there, on, and it won't leave you alone, that sort of warble he puts on that final like it it, it seems feels like the warble he uses within the melody is the same exact melody that came from that original song but again i love on the bus mall and this feels like just kind of like this cheap copy of it and it's really the best i can say i i don't hate the track i really don't i like the basic construct of it i like the accordion i like the bass the rhythm guitar drums tambourine this is all decemberist but it's just their sound and i feel like this is the first track that really just kind of as a track lacks character and I think that, for me, it kind of boils down to, yes, the textures are great. The individual lines are great, with one major exception for me, and that is the percussion line, the, the drum line. It's, it's a little bit too there, a little bit too steady. I was liking the, the background nature of the percussion work in the previous tracks because it was allowing individual layers to really get picked out here it feels like it's a little bit too overbearing when it's when when i can really go yeah the accordion was great where i heard it but a lot of times it gets drowned out the guitar was great where i heard it but when you start throwing all these layers together and then really just make that that deep end a little bit too loud i can't get away from it I really wish that there was more separation between the different lines that they were using here because besides the clutter and the rigidity, there's a lot of great things going on here, but individually, neither one of them individually were developed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Individually, and they neither, could have gone somewhere. None of them are really are really hoisted up. I yeah. have, I about maybe have only one 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 defense for this track, and it's again one of those sort of like. Uh, in the distance artistic interpretation defenses and that's just the concept of this being the wrong year like it's just well that off year you had where nothing was done and you look at some of the ideas here this uh, some of the lyrics the spirits will and flesh is getting bored speakers blaring out some long forgotten chord some misbegotten long forgotten chord sing me some eidolon and i'll sleep the winter long till then i can only be nobody's gonna intervene it's this very just like misplaced not your day i'm 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 in complete uh, in complete hibernation of sorts. It's kind of what I get from this. I don't really think that defends the idea of the, where the track is, because the track itself is pretty a little bit more uplifting. It's not like the track really conveys that. It's more the idea that it is a placeholder. That conveys it, like the year was a placeholder. I mean, f- for me, I don't think... I think I'm more in line with Steve as how I feel about the song as far as liking it. There's definitely a complete lack of character here. That I'll admit, hands down, based on the storytelling prowess that he's had and the character development and the setting development, that is heavily lacking here. 
But I still like the lyrics, like the verse that Steve the, just yeah, read. No, the lyrics. I really enjoy the lyrics here. I was about um, to say that's the other thing, alongside the fact that individually, while the sound is pleasing, I mean the lyrics themselves, maybe they are the standout as feature. If, for instance, you can sort of tune out of the uh, of the kind of unchanging or fairly non-confrontational melody. But I will agree that it does set the first half of the record off kilter. Um, I feel like we get back to it a little bit in the next track, which is. Carolina Low. Oh, we get it back to it big time. In fact, it feels like this is the natural continuation of the track prior to of, uh, like, Till the, the Water. Yeah, because this again br- brings back that very like deep south tune, bluesy, Appalachian. It's, Appalachian. It's really Appalachian. This is in fact more Robert Johnson than anything. I mean, it brings back that that uh, that that Johnson-esque guitar, which in fact was probably my favorite part of uh, the previous album, The King Is Dead, which was probably the first instance where they ever employed that in a very on-the-nose fashion. I think it was toward the second to last track of The King is Dead. And it was my favorite part of that album, because again, I wasn't quite feeling the country thing 100%, but it was still the Decemberist, so I still enjoyed it. But then, by the end there, they had this little hidden bonus track, where it sounded like it was a Robert Johnson uh, song played on a very, very old record, as it would be. He lived in the 30s, and he recorded in the 30s. So it sounded like it was played on an old 78. You can hear the scratches. You can hear the straining to be heard a little bit. And, and it, was this, it was this strange oddity in, in, in the end of that album that kind of closed off a country album very well, very appropriately, I think. Kind of like bringing it back to its roots in, in some sense. And this feels like a continuation of that. You get the finger picking. You get the very closely mic'd uh, bottleneck guitar i mean at some point it actually goes that far like the previous um two tracks ago we didn't quite get that we got single line melodies that sounded like they were going to get that here we get it even if it's just for a moment like around uh, a minute 50 seconds i noted it and it was just like we encountered recently on uh loud and rain right the third's album i haven't got the blues yet and that was just a couple episodes ago in 132 and there's also something that's a little bit distinctive about the vocals here because instead of going for the very emotional he's going for the very emotive it's also speaking to the more Appalachian genre that's going on here this is really probably the most storytelling of uh, uh, songs on the album <laughs> I'm where a boy he's... from the country from the high country and I've got a little love for the offering I come down from the mountains bow to the sea and Carolina low I will carry thee it doesn't do it in that accent yeah but okay he just, he's not trying to share something with you on an emotional level here. He's really just giving you a tale to, to listen to. He's spinning yarn. And what I really like also is what pushes that to the forefront is the stripped-down nature of the whole song. It mostly focuses on that guitar work. There's not a lot much more besides that, and I like that. It brings the story to the forefront, and it really get the idea of this guy on a porch in a rocking chair telling the story in the accent Steve was using, although it was a poor... A poorer version I mean, of the accent. Decent it was decent enough okay. now for, for, for a New Yorker. Geez. For a New Yorker, that's true. Um, another thing I really liked about this track, that little, like, soft church vigil-like organ in the background. At least mm-hmm. we think it was an organ. It, it, could, was have been, it could have been vocals. Or vocals, very low. Specifically either a pipe organ or low vocals meant to kind of just steadily croon along at the same frequency as an organ. I actually, I listened very hard. I could not quite tell. It's either, because organ, pipe organs can very often that, sound human, very vice versa, actually, so can vocals. That actually reminded me of another band we reviewed on the podcast, A Wasty Brought Us, um, The Once. 
that Molly brought us. Once, by the once. Episode 107. Check it out. They had songs with a drone, and this that this organ or chorus served as that drone, which Molly talks about how she really likes in the once songs. It adds like another layer, a texture, and that definitely did it for this song. I think it continued to help push the other stuff to the front, adding this either organ or chorus drone in the background, which yeah. I really, really like. Yeah, no, ambient drones are some of the best, I think, ways to create a setting, even though I think previous pre- previous songs uh, didn't really need that they could kind of could sort of command that of its own using just the guitar itself but still it's uh i, I think they've always employed organ uh excellently in their yeah. work and against that all goes back to jenny conley um i consider that, her, okay. i consider wait, her wait, wait, wait. the musical soul of of the decemberists if for instance um conley is unquestionably the lyrical soul that, that that's that's a first hearing someone talking about an organ and the way it's being employed consistently. That's... I, <laughs> that I don't doesn't think, happen a lot in folk, modern music. Folk or rock. I, I don't think I've heard something like that in, I mean, in the a organs, very, very long in, time. In rock or folk, if an organ's used, it's in a very... Rigid cliche, and defined yeah, matter, yeah. Usually. Well, granted, this does go more toward like the vigil-like state in which you might almost expect it to exist. But first of all, it's a different tone. It's a different quality. It's a different timbre than the organ which Jenny has typically played in previous albums. This is this is a little. This is definitely a pipe organ. I mean, we haven't really heard pipe organs before, so so it it is fresh in its own way. Um, speaking of freshness on the track, at least getting back into stuff that I know is definitely in the earlier. Decemberist catalog. Um, the next track is actually one of my favorites on the record. Um, and it's on the shorter side, which was a little disappointing, but I think suited the track, which is called Better Not Wake the Baby. It's track nine. This is where the Decemberists go into a darker, kind of more disturbing place, like they usually do. Um, it reminds me of Shank Hill Butchers, not necessarily in sound, but in this kind of looming darkness, where they're not truly speaking to an evil or dark plot. There's hints of it, all while Shank Hill Butchers is a little more upfront about it but this song really talks about the struggle that i'm thinking colin himself dealt with with being a father i mean it speaks to how the baby takes this kind of important role above and beyond anything else career your life your love whatever else and this is coupled with a really almost jaunty fully folk song Fully folk, at some points, it even kind of rings back to like a more European style of folk, uh, incorporating the same I final line that. to every single verse. But it better not wake the baby, and every single verse goes along with the same exact pattern. Um, consider just these first two verses. Kick a hole in the hallway while singing like a painted lady. Use your skull like a cannonball, but it better not wake the baby. How long will this go on? How long indeed? You can bang a drum till the money's gone, but it better not wake the baby. This is one of those really, really on-the-nose tracks where I feel he is not in character for once. Granted, he always walks that line really, really gingerly between when it's Colin and when it's not. Remember, we were a little bit confused in the opening track of this album, and it turned out that was not true. But this really coincides pretty closely with the fact that he does have a newborn. He was born in, in 2013. It's his, it's his second child. He does have an older child who's born in 2006. Um, and I believe it I, I'm willing to make the claim. I haven't researched this particular portion. I've researched a few other tracks, but I think it's kind of clear that the idea is that when you concern, you can bang a drum till the money's all gone, which is like a, a, a cheap simplification to what he does as a musician. You know, banging a drum, well, it's just like he's he is a musician. I mean, he, he gets out there. He has a life on stage. This is it's essentially his, it's his livelihood. He needs to put his whole heart into it, but at the same time, 
there's nothing more taxing than taking care of a newborn at home. Well, and it also it, it conveys that idea that I mentioned earlier that no matter what you do, all of these things, the baby still has to come first. Mm-hmm. And with that coupling of the of of how folk it is and how almost uplifting it is, it for me comes off as sweet, as truly sweet. But yeah, bittersweet. But still, it, it's it's a little bit more uplifting oh, than just dark. I don't it's, know. It's it's bittersweet when you consider how long will this go on? How long indeed? I, that sounds like you are in the thick of a baby crying and you don't know what to do and there's nothing that can be done about it but, and you're just but, asking, please let it end. But the music doesn't support that fully. I, doesn't I think it does. No, no, it, it supports does. a. I don't know how else to, to, to explain it. It's it's a little bit too jaunty. I disagree. It's almost like a sarcastic. That, exactly. It's a exactly. sarcasm. I, I think that there's more Okay, yeah, no, I can see that. that. I can see that. But while my favorite part is, while this song is, it, it's got so much meaning involved in it, and I really love the way he's, he's phrasing everything, the previous track was very emotive. This one is just pure evocative. It's it's the other side of that coin. This is really allowing you to really dive into some heavy imagery and to get the emotional attachment that the opposite that the previous song was doing the opposite of. The previous song is just telling you a story. Here it's allowing you to make a story based on his emotions. Yes, I think that's an accurate assessment. I think that um it has its, it has its place. It's not my favorite brand of their work. Um I know it doesn't offer I, I think that much in the way of expansion, but of course that would ruin the point. The point here is to really just utter the same thing over and over again, and the fact that he does stylistically end, uh, end every single stanza with, but it better not wake the baby, but it better not wait. It's like this thing just ringing in the back of your head. You need to keep aware of it at all times, because if, if, if you don't, then, well, you're a bad father. <laughs> I mean, you need to set so many other things in your life aside in order to address this. So I think probably this is the best lyrical and musical format that could be done for this concept. If you want to talk about placement and, uh, and uh, you know, its its appeal on the album, I think it's really more just the appeal in, in, in the time frame you're looking at. It's a 2014 album by the Decemberist. He's not a young man anymore. 20, excuse me, 2015 album. He's just not a young man anymore. He is a father, but still has got the career, and he's tasked to do both because we expected it of him, and the baby expects it of him. Well, I think it's more that people expected of him. The baby, I mean, the baby's expectations are very simple and straightforward. It's a baby. But I like that it's also on the shorter side. Ooh, shit. <laughs> well, pretty much. They eat and they poop. I mean, that's what babies do. But on a more serious note, and what John does on most days, too. Yes, I do eat and poop every day. <laughs> How odd for him, really. It I is mean, bizarre. Sometimes I forget Weird to creature eat. you are. Sometimes I forget to eat, and that means I don't have to poop. Um... But in all seriousness, I think the as much as I wanted more of this track just because I was really enjoying it, the fact that it's about a minute and forty five seconds really adds to this repetitiveness, but it gets them it gets in, gets the message, and gets out. Yeah, you don't dwell too much on this bittersweet nature. You, you, you it does he doesn't let you. You don't want to. So I'm I I'm appreciative of how short the song is. From here we go to <clears throat> a song that's a direct reference to a previous song by this band, and it's track 10's anti-summer song. I'd which imagine is a reference it would, of course, to summer song. Off the Crane Wife, 2006. Um, I strained, actually, even playing them back-to-back, I, I strained to hear the comparison. Again, this is one that I, I really don't have research on hand. It was really just more of like, huh, well, must have said that for some reason. It's um, not foreign for bands to name tracks 
similarly, even if there's no direct musical connection. But lyrical? Sometimes there's a theme connection, even though the lyrics are not well, necessarily the same. That may have to pass for today because I don't have the original Summer Songs lyrics on hand. But what we can easily say about this. this song is that, unlike the wrong year where I did get a little something out of this, this song completely lacked character and fell a lot flatter for me. It's, it's, which is disappointing because it had a traditional song framework, you know, like trad bands like we talked about with, with Painless Parker. And I really dug that it, it had that feel. But it fell flat pretty quick, which was a bummer. The fact of the matter, it was it was just a little too cutesy wootsy for me. Like it, yeah. it it steps into this. Here's the time to use the word jaunty, and you know, in country. a very in a very overt sense. You want to use the word country well, as well. It, well, yes, that's just to describe the style of it. But within that framework, I mean, believe me, lots of country songs tend to tell very sad tales. I don't really see it here. Um, here now, long gone, three freaks in a vanagon. Went to the river, but the river got dry, and all the good people were hanging around. Too little, too late, everybody got to medicate through the winter when the winter comes down, and all the city comes to hanging around. I mean, this is so, like, a day in the life, without a day in the life, that it, 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 it lacks a certain something for me. It, it just feels very two-dimensional to me. It has a harmonica solo. Yay. I, I mean, I like the harmonica. I thought that sounded cool. I like harmonica That's more of a general. courtesy, though. And I don't yeah. tend to look too kindly on that, especially if we go through previous um, previous albums. Lots of times, it's, you know, we come across the Judas Priest, for instance. Seems like an odd comparison, but same basic idea. You go through a Judas Priest song, and you get a solo that is just a solo because people expect the solo in Judas Priest. There's really no rhyme or reason behind it, and apart from just placement in the song format you chose, and it doesn't really feel like it's emphasizing anything. It's not borrowing too much from the from the melody. This may very well be, but the melody didn't have so much of an impact, so how could the solo? See my point? It's just, for me, it's another one of those cases, along with the wrong year, where it feels like they're kind of starting to abandon everything I was loving in the previous songs. Darkness shrouded by beautiful words... Great combinations of being rock and folk. Here, it's very heavy folk, and it's very heavily influenced by country. And it's really not nodding towards a lot of the stuff that they had already introduced in the previous songs in the album. It's, it's, it feels like they're starting to really abandon the idea that they built in the first six tracks and did bring back in track eight and nine. I, I, I'm not a fan of this. I mean, it's basically a mess. Like, I'm not going on just to sing another summer song. So long, farewell, don't everybody fall over themselves. It's a very much, like, stand, like, in the face of, 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 of like, what we presumed, like, in the first track. Well, you know, artists move on and such. I, I expect that might be the, the idea. There was really only one bizarre musical moment here, and that was in the choruses. You get this, I'm not, he's not, going on going on it's this very odd like like bizarre baritone echoes in the background that sort of served to i i guess kind of keep that concept of well he's not gonna sing another summer song so he brought baritones to prove the point and the very awkward so long see you later farewell i come on i i'm <laughs> i'm not i'm not i'm not digging it plain and simple i mean it, it, it's, I mean, I guess it is kind of like a retort to all the people who love Summer Song. 
Again, I don't know if this is the real idea, but it really does seem like that's the point. Anti-Summer Song, you know, who's done with that. But I never really, I guess, kind of saw that as the song that, that fans were, like, promoting. Like, play it again, bring it on. I, I you know, I, I would be doing that to the island, which I think would be more brash, because that's 12 minutes. Give us another island. <laughs> give us another island. Give us another Tane. Give us another Hazards of Love full-on concept. Um, but, you know, eh, different strokes for different folks. We go from here to track 11, Easy Come, Easy Go. So this one has a very Western vibe. Um, it's pretty uh, pretty straightforward as far as songs go on the record. Um, yeah. I didn't feel it as characterless as the last song. There's at least a story to be told here, which I was nice. I think it's just the nature that whenever you have a Western thing, and of course, yeah, we've moved from like the South to the West, and it's like you have that natural, well, there's a character there. Um, you have this upright bass. Then the electric guitar steps in with those very heavy, like, distant strums that start to fade out. They just, like, they play out this twang, and then it fades. Like, Clint Eastwood just has arrived on set to face his enemy. That's just the nature of every, you know, Western track. There's nothing really specific about that here. That's just pretty generic. I mean, I, I, this kind of brings to mind, you know, uh, oh, there was a track off the first Steam Powered Giraffe album, The Two Cent Show, uh, back in episode 39. Rex Marksley, That's the it. pinnacle cowboy. Rex Marksley. That it's was that great. style. Yeah, and yeah, granted, but... of course, that's a satire. You're right. And I don't really have that here. Except it's, it's maybe. Pretty straightforward. Limberjack, he landed on his back, was betting on the netting when the rigging went slack. And I gotta say, that's pretty good songwriting. Was a moonless night, the stars all lending light. She's leering in the mirror when the rodent rode right. I, I mean... <laughs> It's pretty. It's pretty clever. Uh, clever wordplay, even for Colin, especially because he's now infusing that in this style. It's not quite as theatrical as that Steam Powered Giraffe track, admittedly, but of course they're a very theatrical group. Now, Colin is sort of in his own demure way is pretty theatrical. It's just the the track as a whole didn't really like leap out. It quietly told this tale. Yeah, musically, it, I don't feel it was engaging as it was lyrically. Like I did enjoy the story he was telling about about Limberjack. But I have to point out a couple of oddities for me. One was those kind of bongos. I don't know how else to describe them. Kind of, sort of bongos. It was not as clear cut, and it was sort of dealing uh, sort of a percussion role. Not quite. Maybe not bongos. They didn't. They were an oddity <laughs> that I know he likes his oddities. That much is evident. But they did not fit for me here. You're right. There's a lot of little things here that were just kind of like, all right, it's there for whatever reason, because we feel like we have to. It feels like a courtesy. There's just, there's, there's very little overall soul to this track, and especially considering its placement in the album. Um, simply by virtue of the fact that this is typically where filler songs go two-thirds of the way in, you know, between two-thirds somewhere toward the end, that's kind of like that moment in which you might include filler tracks, so I feel like we're all kind of like, we're, we're we're ready to hear them. We're, re we're, we're expecting them in some way, and we're very, very sensitive to them when they arrive. Um, so, yeah, it's just kind of an unfortunate fact that it succumbed in that regard. And also, it's another really oddball call and response right after Colin, because you never really know. And then the, like, faint echoes like a child whispering through a pipe, because you never really know. But, but when the whistle's going to blow... And the whistle's got to blow. <laughs> it's not just a... F it's It almost comes off as, like, v v sultry vibrations, which is a weird combination. Like, For someone trying to be feel. sexy 
while talking from really far away through a metal tube. I don't know. I thought it sounded it's, sounded. it's weird. I thought it sounded like adolescent. I thought it sounded like yeah, like kind of like what was done man. on on um on Mariner's Revenge. You know, maybe the, it was the just child. a reverberation. Find him, bind him, tie him to a pole. Well, that was in 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 the Mariner's Revenge. That was earnest. And that was scary earnest. This doesn't yep. have nearly that level of quality to it. I think it's in contrast. There it fit because of the overall epic that was Mariner's Revenge. Here, I'm just, I was, if I wasn't feeling the beginning, then you, you're not going to get me now with a call and response tactic that has now been used three times on the album. It struck me as a bit of a trope. That's fair. I mean, again, I think that... I didn't dislike this song as much as anti-summer song because there was at least some semblance of character here. There was something to get on to, but again, it, it still fell short. And track twelve also, Minstrel. unfortunately, continues this this pattern. Not I feel as bad, but there's still there's still a lack of that something that we're looking for. Um, it starts with this kind of church gospel esque feel. Um, you know, it's got the the organ, it's got the the chorus he's singing. It's a folk it, sound with a gospel edge. Yeah. Here the vocals are starting to really, starting to take it back for me. Starting to, to break away from what the previous two tracks had been doing to the album. Because in the, in the verses, we're getting a lot of the complexity that was cluttering up the previous two tracks for me. A lot of the, the extra layers that really weren't, in my eyes, completely warranted, I guess. You're getting some very clear-cut, smooth, easy-to-go verses. I'm loving it again. So we already wrecked the rental car, and I've already lost my way. But feet entombed in this cursed bar for a day anyway. So lay me down on the cobblestone and then furrow this, a- this aching jet. The streets are built on ancient gold and the crib and the will. Mm. All right. One... We're getting back to some of the better metaphors again. I'm really enjoying his wordplay. No, yeah, this is a pick-me-up from, I think, the last two tracks no, yeah. a little bit. It's not It's, it's it, not 100% there. It's on the rise. The chorus is, this is, this is a big problem for me. I feel like anybody, anybody doing a song like this would have done the same exact chorus. Just off the cuff. My biggest problem with this song, I think, was the instrumentation. I just feel like, like the previous two songs, it was fairly predictable. It wasn't bad. They're not bad ever. They're talented musicians. It's just I felt like the other two songs I could predict where this was going. And that w- that's a bit of a letdown considering all of the things we've been talking about previously. That said, though, I agree with John lyrically. I did enjoy the song. But again, lyrically... Lyrically, I, I always enjoy... Right. The last songs. song I enjoyed lyrically also. I mean, that's kind of like the sky is blue, water is cold. He writes good lyrics. Except, except the sky's not always blue and water is not always cold. You can boil water and sometimes it's night. <laughs> That's true. Grass isn't even always green. I mean, it dies. That's brown. I didn't mention grass. I know. I'm just saying how you could have failed. <laughs> oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> That's pretty good. I like that one. There was <laughs> one thing in this song that I really, really would have loved to get a lot more of, and that was the dive bar piano. Yes, yeah. that was There's a very, very nice moment. The, yeah. That kind of piano solo pushing it to the fronts, and it did feel very dive bar, like pianist at the dive bar kind of that would getting have his tips. I would, I would say it's not oh. honky-tonk, because that would imply that, well, we're, it's an older period. It's more of a hundred-year-ago thing. But this is like more of a modern-type dive bar in the country. And the funny thing, you actually get that in the lyrics, so as John read. So we've, 
already wrecked the rental car, and I've already lost my way, but feet entombed in this cursed bar for a day anyway. It strikes me as this is just actually like his car broke down, and here he is, Colin Malloy, frontman of the Decemberists, enters a bar, and here he is, so it's me and you and the baby boy, and the fort shed away, breaking out a little joy, blown away back in stance. It's like they decided to actually, well, put on a little, like he's got his guitar in his back, might as well. Might Make the play. best he of a bad there, situation. Yeah. Yeah. That it's a steady beat, though. It's too steady. <laughs> Can't get over the percussion. The percussion is just too present and and steady to really feel the flow going on, and that's where the choruses start to fall apart for me. The choruses and the interspersed instrumental parts, because yeah, we get that dive bar piano, great great but it gets drowned out mm. there's too much going on you're gonna do something that is so distinct sound wise let it let it f- be fruitful let it multiply let it go out there let it just flourish let it have little piano babies there you go there, there are no piano ba- babies here no it gets it, nothing gets subtracted from the song to introduce this piano and I felt like that could have worked I, I agree um, it's I if I'm correct in that analysis, which is taken from just a few lines here, if you interpret him as the minstrel, but then again, that would be the third person, so I'm not 100% on that. It's really more, I, I suppose it was meant to be a ditty as maybe an ode to a situation that actually occurred. Um, maybe whether it was him on stage or not, I well, don't know. it sounds like it could be a situation where him, his wife, and his baby were out going to a tour, meeting yeah. up with the band, and that happened. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it is what it is, and I guess it fills that purpose you're not going to get an epic from that but again an oddity amidst the i mean as in contrast to the odyssey uh track 13 12 17 12 this takes us back to the the introduction which i kind of heavily uh weighed down this album because it of course concerns a very touchy subject the sandy hook elementary school shooting that was the event that occurred, I believe, on that day. If not, maybe that was Obama's speech, uh, which I don't know whether that occurred that day or if not, it, it was, was around the time. It was 12-17-12. That was the date of the speech. Yeah. Um, bit of an odd subject, but I admit, I guess this this whole track fits the mood. And I said earlier on that I'm a little leery about, like, um, about incorporating, you know, really touchy topical subjects in but of course it's, it's his reaction to it and it's pretty interesting from his standpoint he's coming from a place where he was really just you know swelled up with joy and you see this in the duality of the verses start off what a gift what a gift you can give me here with my heart so whole while others may be grieving think of their grieving And oh, my boy, don't you know you are dear to me? You are breath of life and a light upon the water, a light upon the water. And oh, my love, if you only knew how I long for you, how I waste my days wishing you could come around just to have you around. I mean, it it it's this in reflection of the idea that it was an elementary school shooting and that he has a kid. And again, two and the older one is about elementary school. So yeah that's that's about it was bound to make anyone with a child very very on edge when you consider that there are people out there like that who might do this well it would make anyone period on edge if you have a child even more of course he has just he has a microphone and a voice yeah (laughs) so he he's he's reflecting it i mean it's a time in which he's very much happy about being a father and 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 things are just on the up and up he continues And what a dear, what a sweet little baby, this cannonball in the bosom of your belly. Ah, see, written while she was pregnant, Pregnant. 
2012, December 2012, wasn't born till 2013. There you go. It's just a kick in your belly. And oh my god, what a world you have made here. What a terrible world. What a beautiful world. There's the line that the title, the album title is pulled from. What a world you have made here. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a very, very unsettling song from which to, I guess, uh, not just start us off with the album because you're, you're tempted to ask the question about the song that will later come, but also start off the life of your new child. In but a that's, world where something that terrible can happen. Yeah, but that's also the history of humanity. Everyone, again, beautiful things have always existed alongside very tragic things. You know, imagine what people felt on for people who birthed a baby on 9-11, for instance. Well, yeah. they got to live with that. And that's just the fact of life. You wish the best, you hope for the best, but keep the other thing in mind. The combination... Very existential. <laughs> well, the whole thing comes off pure bittersweet. It's it's lovely for that. It's existential. It's, well, the yeah. song itself is beautiful. Yeah. The instrumentation no, no, I'm, that's is what I'm saying. gorgeous. It does a great job of of saying, yes, I'm happy, but I understand the pain that's going around, around him right now. That's... Mm-hmm. that's actually attacking the nation to some extent it's a it's great for that it may not be everyone's cup of tea especially those personally touched by this tragedy but it's enough there to that you really feel the heart of what's going on here purely musically i love the fact that he decided to go a lot more acoustic and a lot lower on the percussion here it it it's just sweet it's smooth the vocals stand out so well for for what he's trying to do here. It's a great breath before the final plunge into the last track of the album. It really also, you can tell the personal connection to this song. There are hints of personal connection in other tracks. But here, there is no character. This is him singing about his unborn baby and a terrible tragedy. And that kind of dichotomy is is powerful and 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 hard to swallow all at the same time. Well, here's the thing. I mean, granted, of course, there's no character, but of course the music still has the Decemberist edge sure. and his edge. And it also made me realize uh, something that I realized a very long time ago about his, his vocals and how another reason why I consider them a full discography band is because his voice has a certain way to, I think, pull me through just about any tragic event, yeah. any heartbreak. I has a lot to say. I'm really laying it on, laying my adoration for this band on pretty thick. And it, sometimes it really has to do with that it factor, that vocal quality that only he has. And it just sounds effortless. It never sounds like he's trying to write a song here and just trying to provide you with things. Granted, we had a few uh, downers on this album, but for the most part, all of it is just very natural. And this is the kind of track I'm looking for in December's album, very much reflecting, um, you know, what we were talking about back in the Weezer discussion, episode 116. And John was like, this is what I want from Weezer. People, Weezer fans know what they want from Weezer, yeah. you know? And a lot of it is surrounds similar concepts. A, a basic songwriting style that 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 feels effortless and can, can sort of bring you through the heartache and bring you through the laughter all at once. Just that effortless songwriting, Paul McCartney-esque kind of style. Um, not always full fluid composition, just songwriting. There's still a lot to be said for that and um, a lot of place for it, I think, in our time. I don't think there's much more to be said about this track. I think it, it speaks for itself. No, that was more of a digression yeah. <laughs> of sorts. So moving on to the final track of the album, A Beginning Song. In retrospect, and like I said, I did a lot of homework. This was, I think, the most iconic of the Decemberist sound. On this album. On this yes. album. It, it was the most of 
if someone said the word Decemberus, this is what you would hear. Hmm. It's the very much feels that way, the character of the Decemberus, even if it's not your favorite sound of theirs, it felt the most to their character. Mm -hmm. And it's even got a little bit of that like unrefined edge. It's, it's, it's very bright, a little bit distant, the not quite studio guitar, like there's a microphone in the room somewhere, but it's near, not quite close. Um, still a bit warmer uh, as far as subject matter is concerned. It's about beginnings. The melody stands on its own against the rhythm guitar. Uh, we add a little bit more grit here with the upright uh, upright bass bowed this time, not pizzicato. So that has, again, a lot more grit. Even, even interestingly enough, a little bit Weezer-ish. Funny, I just mentioned them. There's also grit coming from the hollow kind of drum sound that's coming through on this track. You know, it's not as just crisp. It adds to that other stuff you've been describing, that hollow kind of drumming sound. Makes it sound like it's not perfectly situated, composed, and recorded. There's mm -hmm. a little off to it. And uh, let's get back to those, those, the beginnings, the, the, the looking forward to something. Let's commence to coordinate our sights and get them square to rights. Get them square to rights. Condescend to calm this riot in your mind. Find yourself in time. Find yourself in time. I am waiting. Should I be waiting? If I am wanting, should I be wanting? And all around me, all around me. Document the world inside his skin, the tenor of your shins, the timbre of your limbs. Oh, God, he, he could say anything. He could say anything. It would just come out so soothing. And I love the positivity that kind of surrounds this track, again, in contrast to the previous. And they that, are paired together very well. That yeah. metaphor, the tenor of your shins, the timbre of your limbs, I've never heard anything like that. I'll be just right up there honest. That is a, that is like a really unique stance upon... The imagery he's using here it's so pretty it's just beautiful what I, also... I never would have expected that shins would have a tenor <laughs> exactly it's just i've never heard the two the two things being associated what it, I just, really... it really just makes you think in terms of imagery like that's what he does okay sometimes it might even almost seem arbitrary but he opens your mind to concepts that you wouldn't otherwise think of like you know i kind of almost do picture like you know Girl, really, really nice legs. Now I'm focused not just on the leg as a whole, but on the minutia, the shin itself. And then, like, equating that to the smoothness of a tenor vocal. I mean, that's just, ah, uh, it has the power behind it, you know? Ah, uh, again, opening your mind to concepts. And it culminates, and the light, bright light, bright light, bright light, it's all around me, and that repetition, it's all around me. This track more than any other track on this album, more than a lot of what I actually have heard and remembered from the Decembers themselves, really does end hopefully. Really does end just purely positively. Mm -hmm. It's it's a great way to end the album. And f frankly, uh, this... The light, bright one, light, it's all around me. It's all around me. Just the track one to track 14, those two songs, the folk plus rock of track one and the well quintessential December is show me that while there's some issues going on here for the album itself the the beginning and the end the the period and this opener that they're putting on this album as a whole they're giving the fans exactly what they think of as Decemberists. yeah 
Musically, I want to speak to... Steve was describing the actual instrumentation we get, but what I like about it structurally is it doesn't start all... We don't get a cacophony of sound. We don't get everything at once. They build, and they build, and they get bigger, and they get bigger, and they swell until halfway through the track. Easy enough. We get... Oh, I'm... Never mind. I'm not going there. Um, <laughs> halfway through the track, amidst that chorus, we get... Actual, uh, an actual fanfare swell that's so perfectly timed and actually not predictable that I was really like it was a very impactful, almost incredible, actually, actually very incredible moment. And you know what? Considering the, the, the left field that they like to play out of, a fanfare that's that's perfectly, I don't care, it's a fanfare, it's a typical fanfare, it's almost iconic, yet it works so great in context because. Yeah, it's that oddball that really adds a little bit extra flavor, context, and texture to the piece itself. I love it. Yeah, I mean, as far as a developed outro is concerned, uh, it, it, it's it's not quite, I think, like married to the album as a whole, but it stands on its own and it does kind of, it, it wraps up something that that experimented while at the same time keeping itself very grounded all at once. So, yeah. Definitely a strong close. So, yeah, you want me to start first? John's yeah, I'm pointing, pointing at you. I ain't, I ain't ready. All right, I'll, I'll start first. Um, so, as I had said, this is my brief digression that I got into a bit before. I got into the Decemberists because of the Wasties, because they cover a bunch of their tracks, um, and honestly also because of Steve's interest in them. When I first, The first time I ever saw the Wasties live, before I ever knew I would fall in love with Sarah, before I ever knew any of the band members except for Molly, who I'd known through Burlesque, I didn't really know the Decemberists, and they played a cautionary song, and Steve was over the moon when we were sitting at the way station, because Steve loved the Decemberists, and was, oh my god, they're covering a December song, I know this song, and sang along, and it really gave me the, the joy that Steve had for hearing a song that he knew performed by another band, and still just enjoying it as much, spoke to the songwriting. If another band can play your music and give it as much character, or their own character, Using your work, it adds a versatility to that music that's inherent to it. This band is no stranger to that. Um, I love their previous work. I've mentioned at times that my favorite track is actually... My favorite album, rather, track. It's Steve's fault. He does that all the time. I'm blaming you. <laughs> um, my, favorite album, <laughs> my favorite album by the band is The King is Dead. I think mostly because there are a bunch of songs on The King is Dead that I really connect to emotionally. That said, this album, I just feel, isn't as strong as their early works for sure. To me, wasn't as strong as King is Dead because even if King is Dead was a departure from pre the earlier discography, I still really, really liked it. That said though, this album has its flaws, but it's not bad by any means. And I don't think anyone at this table even thinks that. I think they're just disappointments. And when you're dealing with a band with a discography, especially an extensive one, you're going to hit disappointments. I'm pretending that the Foo Fighters album was something else because I was horribly disappointed by that, and I still think it's a good record. It just disappointed me because I'm a diehard Foo Fighters fan. I mean, the, the, the songs in the second half that I was truly disappointed with, only one I really was very close to not really liking at all. Everything else I enjoyed or loved. And Steve really hit the nail on the head about Colin. There is no singer like him. I would equate him to um, 
um, Justin Furstenfeld of Blocktober and the fact that the singer singing can do whatever he wants and it holds the song together even if the song itself is not up to the quality you might be looking for or engaging the way you want a powerful singer can guide you and I feel that way about Blue October's lead singer I feel the same way about Colin Malloy um, that said I'm not going to praise this album across the board I you know there were there were issues there were predi- there were predictabilities that I'd not really heard in their previous work like Steve said you know and they were easy to point out I'm not going to go over them again go back to the songs that we mentioned them in there are a few on the second side but all in all I really love this record um, I think that those hints that they give it to where they could be going are strong things that I look forward to hearing more of and I'm glad that we have a new Decemberist record so for me I give it a 4.25 it's definitely over a 4 for me because it's the Decemberist there's the talent the intrigue the interest the ability but it's not a four five or a five or anything over a four two five for me because there are still these holes these gaping holes that i kind of expect better of and i guess that's that's not that unfair we've talked about that in the past with with artists that we expect better based on their talent but definitely a solid four four point two five for me because i still really enjoy the record and there's a lot to chew on the Decembrists were an unknown factor for me that these two have talked about and Steve really, really spoke highly of. Um, I have to say, when I started doing my research, I was not disappointed. I didn't. I really enjoyed pretty much everything I heard by them. And frankly, their concept album, The Hazards of Love, f- blew my mind. And I was kind of like... I looked at Steve and he was like, oh, I love this from this album, this from this album. I was like, why didn't you just keep going The Hazard of Love, The Hazard of Love, The Hazard of Love? It still really pleases me that that that, that brought you in. Even all the, because I can dance a lot of music in one single week, even all the the similarities between all the music, that album just stood out so starkly, and not just because of the additional talent they brought onto it. After all, Shara was there. Shara Wharton. They did something magical there. I feel like this is another one of their, not really a concept album, but just a solid story they're trying to create. I hinted at it in the beginning when we started talking about the track-by-track nature. I feel like there is a solid character throughout. There is a sort of the single entity that is in the singer addresses his audience. This is his life story, and it's... a. Uh, fictional biography or fictional autobiography but the gaping holes and I really do think some of these holes are gaping with the wrong year and anti-summer song I mean these things threw me for a loop and while the wrong year did have a great pickup with Carolina Lowe anti-summer song stuck around for a while up and through minstrel and even minstrel wasn't a strong save that's a pretty big chunk that kind of threw me for a loop and took me out of the musical arc that was going on. We have to rate as a whole because some of this, honestly, tracks four, five, six. Those That trio right there, that's going to be sitting with me for a very long time. I'm going back to those guys because as a whole, they're a, a solid trifecta, a solid core for anything you want to build off of. 
But that is not enough to really take that Motown and Grease that was in the beginning and kind of you're losing your feet. You don't really know where you're standing. It breaks apart when it when it goes to heavy country for me. It's great. And the vocals are great. And the lyrics almost throughout are, are just stellar. And the instrumentation, I mean, yeah, it was cluttered in even the worst songs, but the individual lines were still great. I love that dive bar piano. I love the organ that was here and there. I love the guitar work. It's just certain things overshadowed it and detracted it for me. Um, so while, yeah, it's not a five-star album, not by any stretch, it's still, I think I'm right there with Matt. It's a 425. It's really good. Uh, I, I wouldn't rate it against anything else they've done. I, I, on its own, it's a solid 425. I may not go back to it as a whole, but there's just... It's 10, 11-ish solid songs with a couple of pieces that really just break up the overall theme and arc of it. Okay. Well, a New York Times review noted that what a terrible world, what a beautiful world strikes a note of pop concision and maturity building on what worked on The King is Dead, that is what succeeded on The King is Dead. Lyrically, there are fewer thistles and minarets and palakins. I like how he's trying to fit Colin's voice. And musically, less digressive excess than once made up the Decemberists' trademark style. Less digressive excess. Ugh, New York Times. I, I want to sock them in the... Yeah, no, they're complimenting <laughs> the things that you would find as detriments. Exactly. Digressive excess. Dig- they were never digressive to me. And what was excess in earlier Decemberist was usually, you know, layering on the good stuff. Just one cake layer of icing after the other. Let's make this the best cake in the world. I mean, this is the kind of thing that brought me into the Decemberist in the first place. So to me, to have musically less digressive excess in this album is not so much of a complimentary thing. Or even to have fewer thistles and minarets and palakins. Then again, I don't know whether this is really a... Uh, I, I would think this is being cited as a as a success and not a fault. Um, pop concision and mach- maturity is what it said earlier. Anyway, I'm not like really going by New York Times here. I'm just trying to provide a framework for the way I really feel about this and the way I feel about his discography, discography as a whole. I think, I think that when Colin experiments the most, I think it is just the best. And I think that... I, I, you'd think that would be fairly obvious... And yet he's experimented throughout the majority of his work. Each album introduces a new thing. Well, King is Dead, as I said, was, I think, a little bit of a less experimental album. Still brought in something new, an element that was new, and that was a more countryside than previous. Well, as for this album, I gotta say, it's been pretty obvious here how much of a top-heavy album this is. Um, The beginning... And, and again, John mentioned that three block of tracks that's really, really solid. I do believe that does bring in that new element. That whole little Appalachian Creole style. Eh, he's, again, he's folk, but have we really gone there? Have we really been that particular? I don't think we really have with the December style, and I want more of that. I believe those that three block of tracks, or even four block of tracks, if you extend that to include Carolina Low, um skipping the wrong year <laughs> then you know frankly i think it's this is this is the essence of this album unfortunately it's only four out of 14 and we do have a lot of other stuff still 
We also noted the good things there. Though they may not be the same, there's not quite that through line. There's a lot of other things that do fit the overall theme that John cited of what a, be what a terrible world, what a beautiful world, the concept of having, of having something really near and dear to your heart and then also watching it be torn or also in fear that it will be torn. I think this is a very important theme. Um, but there are holes. There are definite holes. And it may... I, I may not quite be as kind. I think I'm going to just drop this slightly um, and leave it at a, a 4 point... I'm going to say a 4.2. Not quite a 4.25. It's not much of a decline, but it, it's, it's a little bit better than average just because the tracks that are really, really good offer quite a bit. Some less aha moments, but I don't need them in every album. Frankly, they've provided me with more than enough. It's a solid album by a solid songwriter. So, bump it up. And, of course, the band as a whole. I don't mean to just single out Colin, but, you know, lyrics it, are important. It's hard when he's such an ever-present part of the It really it, it is, band. yeah. But, yeah, I, again, Jenny is almost just as strong for me in almost every capacity. Well, it's sometimes hard to not look at the front man or woman of a band and get caught up in that because they are the voice of the band if there's lyrics and... Sometimes that takes the forefront. Believe me, during that concert at the Beacon, I was not the only one who giggled and 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 swooned when he said a wintry mix. Oh, I'm sure <laughs> everybody loves his turn of phrase. Yeah, he he seems like a talker. But um, I'm glad though that we we all finally got an album of a band that we liked or discovered to like, and we were ple pleasantly surprised and enjoyed along like with Weezer because we've had a lot of disappointments with stuff that we look forward to. And that's kind of, you know, that's kind of the way things go with an impressive and <coughs> omnipresent discography. It's hard to not compare. And we've done it before. That's, the, the, see, that's a little bit different. Uh, taking it from, well, Steve's point of view when he did the uh, Weezer episode, because uh, we're going to have to make a little bit of comparison here, it's kind of weird just completely immersing yourself in a band so that you can understand the new album that's coming out. It's an interesting tactic that I don't know that a lot of people do, honestly. I mean, I have. But I think that from an analytical standpoint, it's essentially doing a research project. And it's interesting to kind of take music in that way, because I don't know that a lot of people talk about that. I mean, we're usually passably familiar with a band, or when we're pulling for something you know, completely out of left field, because we haven't made enough baseball analogies this, uh, this issue, it's, you, you at least get familiar with a lot of the songs that are going on here. You at least get familiar with it. But when you get so steeped into one specific songwriter or vocalist or musician or just frame of thought in creating music, when you're dealing with the same techno by the same guy over and over and over again, or the same sort of folk-oriented rock that we got, well, here. It's hard to start differentiating between the evolution. Because when I was doing this, to go from one album to the next to the next, yes, I saw the differences, but for me, it was mostly the similarities that painted the picture of the Decembers for me. Because until we actually got more for till I actually got to the concept album, it was hard for me to be able to hear one of their songs and point it out and go, that was from 2002. That was from 2006. Mm -hmm. Because, well, 
they blended. I'll be honest. They did blend very heavily for That's me. That's a success for me in some sense, also because of the fact, I mean, you know, if, like I was discussing in the beginning, if they, they have a through line to their work, and you hear it throughout, and you don't really hear placement, like, I, I really have tried to go back to Castaways and Cutouts and say, ooh, is that, uh, is it really starting to date? Were they, were they immature for the time? It's barely noticeable. It seems like he was as creative then as he is now. So take into account, you know, discography as a whole. This is like... It's the kind of thing that I think is is important on one hand because it does fuel what you will be getting. You have to understand that there's a history behind that. It didn't just crop up out of nowhere. There's this, this rich history of, of, you know, turmoil here and there. I, I mean, here's the thing. Even though I say that, well, by going back to Castaways and Cutouts, you're not really looking at, at an, an earlier or more immature version of Colin necessarily from the musical angle. Of course, that's not to say that he didn't learn things as he went along the way. Every single album introduced a new element. You know, Her Majesty, for instance, was a lot more filled out. Granted, uh, Castaways and Cutouts is a little bit more stripped down because it's a debut album. It's not going to have the same amount of money put into it. But then Her Majesty, all of a sudden, when they introduced Los Angeles, I'm Yours, followed by um, The Gym is High Above the Ground, the strings in the background, it was absolutely beautiful. You know, they, they incorporated full-on instrumentation. Whatever producer they had working with them then was almost just as much to... To, to, uh, to credit for their success because it's, it's all about discovering the artist's innards, so to speak, and trying to bring that out best. Gradually, as they mature as a band, you'll notice that maybe they get better at choosing their producers. I think also it's important to note, though, while discussing this, though, it was fantastic that Steve dove into all of Weezer before we listened to the Weezer record together, something me and John didn't really have to do, and... You know, December, same thing. Me and Steve were pretty familiar, but John dove in all the way. It's important to note that I don't think that it would serve this podcast a well function to do that with every band. There are plenty of bands we've done where we could do that with their whole catalog, but it's not. I, I just feel like you, for, for something like this that has so much meaning to other members of this show, it's important to do it once in a while. And that's just it. Like, it comes. It, the same thing can also be said, of course, for, well, your friends. For anybody who you know, I mean, t you, you must understand that there are certainly bands out there. Like, for instance, I raised the question of the Beatles earlier on. Yeah. You know, there are bands out there that have such followings, such heavy followings, whether they be cult followings or just followings because they're that broad, that they're going to command a lot of knowledge and that you have to understand again that there's an order in which things were done and then you have to consider well what impact have they had clearly by just virtue of numbers they had impact so it really would be a disservice to kind of just say eh, i'll take the album for the album you gotta take into consideration the long journey that led them to that point it it also is it's just the fact that well when Steve first told me that he had gone through the entire discography of Weezer, I was I was frankly uh, impressed and a little awed because, well, that's a lot of music. It's a lot of music I grew up with, literally. and Not figuratively? When, well, I, I heard it from the very beginning when I was very young. And then Sounds I, figured to me. Yeah. I grew up with it. I mean, I was a preteen when I started listening I, to Weezer. I got it. For Steve... For me, when Steve has been talking about a band for two years, 
Two plus years. Actually, probably more like three years. Closer to three. Hey, but let's face it, I don't really bring them up a lot because I often have not found people really to compare them to. So I don't you really bring them up know. being like, oh yeah, they sound it's like It's been the off the air more than on the air. Yes, a lot on the air. You remember I take a lot of car rides with you. True. I have a lot of separate uh, strands of, of um, musical interests. It was a little intimidating to actually get into this and... Honestly, you made me a fan. You made me a huge fan of this band. Not just with The Hazard of Love, though. That will probably be my favorite for a very long time. Mm-hmm. But as a whole. Because, well, when when the Decembers came out, I was into completely different types of music. I was into rap. Uh, I was into hip-hop. I was into, actually, a lot of techno at the time as well. And I kind of followed that train of thought when listening to music up until about probably 2005 when I really had a introspective go back to my roots type of music where I'm going back into classic rock and things like that. I remember doing this because my brother, well, he kind of did the same exact thing as me about a year and a half or two years later, I think. So I kind of missed out on them and I'm kicking myself because, well, I missed out on growing along with a band that, well, did a hell of a lot with very little and then uh, more than they needed. It's... It's kind of bittersweet for me with all the bittersweet music that they have because I think I would have appreciated this band a hell of a lot more and this album itself a hell of a lot more had I just had so much more familiarity with the band. Hey, sometimes that's a two-way street. As you saw with me today, I rated only slightly lower than you and that's because, of course, for me, I know the band and I know the band. So to me, you know, blasting... The Island, my favorite track off of Crane Wife and probably my favorite track from them ever, which is really a combination of like three tracks that are kind of merged together, add together the very, very um, rock-heavy intro. To me, blasting that at like maximum volume on uh, on my Nissan Sentra was <laughs> was pretty much the bee's knees, and that was pretty much it. Like, you couldn't get any bigger than that. That was just like the pinnacle, um, you know. I remember actually it was a, a recent tweet on one of the followers of um, of the podcast, Jose, shout out, recently tweeted something like, never met anybody who had the, the minuscule uh, musical quirk of like raising the volume in certain energetic moments. And I'm like, done that my whole life. And that's certainly a prime example. To me, that was just like, okay, let's blow out the speakers here and then let's turn it down a notch for the nice, um, for the nice opening or first of the three combination tracks. So my point is, of course, when you reach these heights with a certain band, it really is hard, one after the other, to reach another expectation. John just had this in a different order because, well, he, he interestingly, he went through them and it was all the one big blur because he's going through them really, really fast, one after the other after the other, and then he stumbled upon Hazards of Love, and it's not surprising to me that that ended up being his favorite album because it's just one of those cohesive albums front to back. It was the only time they ever endeavored toward a... Uh, toward a concept album itself so of course one is going to blend right into the next and you feel like you're just on this constant journey rather than having to do this kind of like breathe hiccup between a track and kind of prime yourself for the new for the new single that you might get in the very next track lots of albums are broken up that way and certainly the earlier uh december's albums can be picked and chosen and you could put them on playlists as matt likes to say or for instance um just shuffle you know, I really would be happy with any December song that I came across, um, not in any particular order, until I came across The Hazards of Love, which did actually make that a more challenging album for me for a while. I was kind of hesitant because it was such a such a vast project. I needed to kind of be ready for it. You know, you couldn't really just take one track. Granted, I liked moments 
I liked, of course, Shower Warden's several moments on that, um, one of them being repaid, which is really only half of one track. Point is, a lot of this can help or hurt. Like, know the band, but also don't be blinded by the band. Don't be blinded by the kind of successes that you're expecting one after the other. And also don't, you know, don't hold them to a ridiculous standard. I had to kind of temper this because I had people warning me, well, it's not the, own the old Decemberists, but you got to just consider it in other contexts as you go. That is a great point and a great way to wrap up this discussion, I think. That's very on point. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and okay. honestly, I'm going to connect this to my album for next week by issuing a challenge to our audience after Steve gets into our spam mail of the week. Spam mail of the week. Wait, can I, can I accept the challenge as well? Yeah, sure. Yes. You're challenge accepted. That. Challenge accepted. As we are all <laughs> How I Met Your Mother friends <clears throat> and friends. Transfer out every day, serial or every month. Newsletters with peculiar sales, discounts, and coupons that can be better upfront to you to opt fabrics that are frowned upon and the scripture commercial instrument in a distich period of time when they real variety a malefactor to make for havoc. Discipline the info that go with your form. Provides link. As if that's a place to provide a link. Michael Kors handbags your jewelry. When thumbed oftentimes, these pieces of accumulation, united with all kinds of constraint, is presently in elegance. In that location is no explanation to throw in the towel. Peach to your movable barrier. You don't necessity to eat a sanguine fasting and start doing a promptly investigation for diminution codes. A Michael Kors Canada. I'm hurting right now. That they're not even using Google Translate anymore. They're just going through Keywords. like a, a whatever to English dictionary and finding the one that looks the prettiest. Sanguine? Sanguine. You don't necessity to eat a sanguine fasting. Sanguine fasting. I mean that's that's like Decemberist material. I right was there. gonna say <laughs> This is a very appropriate I love okay, we gotta that's, reply to this guy. That's beautiful. Malefactor to make for havoc. I, I, it's, it's, it's a Colin troll. That's it. <laughs> he knew we were doing this. He stepped and in. And he trolled us as my course. Yeah, that, that would make sense. So, my album pick for next week is by a band who is assumed to be one man by name. Um, back in high school and in, in college, I was listening to a lot of heavy rock and new metal. And one of the people at the forefront of heavy rock and new metal who put out a lot of albums, was Marilyn Manson. Oh! Marilyn Manson was one of the biggest names in the late 90s, early 2000s. Songs like Dope Show and and and, and, and so on and so forth. Just oh. Sweet Dreams, his I'm cover hurting. of the Eurythmics. He put out a lot of records. And then I hit college, and he put out some records in the late 2000s that were not great. And I fell out of graces with Marilyn Manson. I still find... I like a lot of his older stuff. I, I definitely enjoyed it. He was a man who now goes by Marilyn Manson, but originally, that was the name of his band. He was just a guy like anybody else in it and assumed this larger-than-life persona. He's, of course, done a lot since. He's been acting. He's still been writing albums. He's had a few since the late 2000s, but I hadn't really listened to many of them. He put out a brand-new record this year. It's probably terrible, but I have not heard it except for the single, so I decided to pick it. So we are reviewing The Pale Emperor by Marilyn Manson. Now, I saw that. I was so hoping you didn't see that. I'm so upset. 
that I already accepted this challenge. I thought the spam hurt. I thought the spam Okay, hurt. I'll be up front. I'm going to try. It's fine. But I'm not going to be able to get through his whole discography. So I would like people, if you're going to listen along with us next week, try and go back and listen to all his stuff. He's got a lot of records. He's got a long discography. His sound has evolved over the years. He tried some classic rock stuff. He, of course, did some heavy rock, a lot of heavy rock stuff. If Marilyn Manson had anything, it was personality and character. He's always been a personality. I'm hoping that character's at least in the new record. No. All right. I'll take... I'll, yeah. I thank you for taking the fall on this. I think this is an interesting idea that no one else would have ever chosen, for sure. And um, I would never have had any any reason, I think, to search through Mar Marilyn Manson's work, except for, of course, the Grass Chords podcast. So, this should be interesting. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Look, it could end up like him, Tears on Tape, or... I have no problem with him. I have no problem with Marilyn Manson. But... It's just a... a yeah, it, it's a chore. It's a chore. There's yeah. a lot of music he's And made. that's what we do. Yes. So we'll be taking this on next week. Um, I also did it because it's that nostalgia moment. For the same reason I chose him when I did, I listened to him in my adolescent years, and I have fond memories of Marilyn Manson, Korn, him, bands like that of that time, Disturbed. So I want to go back to it. Let's see if it holds up or we're, if it's something new. Considering I just finished off my adolescent band, we were in very different places in our adolescent times. That is very true. Um, with that shocker, while my co-hosts are reeling, I feel like this is a good time to wrap up and say, as always, music is life. And, and life, life is, is good. good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one -on -one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.